Hello and welcome to the SureDog Radio Network preview for UFC 269, Oliveira versus Poirier. I'm your host, Ben Duffy of SureDog.com. With me, as always, is Keith Schillen, executive producer of the SureDog Radio Network. Keith, as soon as we picked up the call tonight, you led off with, hey, this is a dope card. And I said, let's just start recording because I've got plenty I want to say about it, too. If I may lead off... uh, I mean, obviously, anytime the UFC puts out a pay-per-view in the last year or two, you're expecting it to be loaded at the top. Most of them have two title fights. Most of them, the the main card at least, is just completely bulletproof. Uh, the thing I noticed in putting together my prep for this program is the the greatness of this card on paper is at least partly to do with what it doesn't have compared to what it does have. What this card does not have, it does not have any loser leaves town matches. I mean, there are a few individual fights where one person might be in danger of their job, but there are no fights on this card between two people on losing streaks where, okay, whoever loses this one is probably gone. There are no debuting fighters from the Contender Series on this card. Uh, I mean, obviously, people got to debut in the UFC, but unless you're Michael Chandler or Manel Cop, it's usually a fight night. If you're just another dude or, or or a lady coming onto the roster, it's usually a fight night. This card has no debuting who type fighters. There's one like borderline unranked heavyweight fight, and that's it. You know, so my my three indicators of poor card health, which you know, loser leaves town matches, too many debuting fighters from the contender series, and unranked heavyweight like slop fest. This card does not have them. Like it's good from top to bottom. <laughs> yeah, dude, this card is so dope. <laughs> it, it is wicked good. Um, we, we're looking at it. We have 15 fights. I'm not complaining about getting 15 fights because uh, about 14 of them I'm excited for. Yeah, you you said what it doesn't have. You just had me thinking. Like if you made, yeah, if you're a fighter and you got assigned to this card, as I'm cheating, looking over uh, at Fight Finder to look at the lineup. You either are an elite fighter in the division or, you know, a ranked fighter in the division, a rising prospect that has a lot of uh, intrigue. I'm thinking about the Maverick Blanchfield fight. Or you're just an all out action fighter, like in a fight like Randy Costa versus uh, Tony Kelly. The only fight that doesn't fit those three categories is probably the first fight. And the only reason I think that fight got on the card is because 15 is a, a better number than 14. Like, it just fits better. <laughs> I completely agree. I mean, there's a 10, 10 prelims here. It's a five-fight main card and then 10 prelims. Of these 10 prelims, four of them could have been a fight night main event. And nobody yeah, would have I'm, glad that, I'm glad you said that because I'm looking at the prelims. Well, I'm looking at the entire card, and I'm like, could this fight – headline a fight night and i'm like well obviously Oliveira poirier nudez uh pena neil ponzinibbio garbrandt car france o'malley versus paiva so there's the main card all five of yep. those good yep emmett ige cruz muniz tuvasa sakai is that is that the cutoff would you say that no because i think you go further down the card I don't even know that Alex Perez versus Matt Schnell would have been the worst uh, 
That's at least like, a cool main event. Fight Night main event. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you could just cut off the entire main card from this, like, <laughs> take the 10 fights, like, make Emmett versus Ige the headliner, and that's a pretty good Fight Night card. Oh, yeah. We, we just lose about- the entire main card, that's and this right. is still... <laughs> We've been talking about how great of an action, you know, not the biggest names if we cut off the top five fights, but how action-packed it is and intriguing prospects and everything we said. Yeah, and we haven't even talked about the main event yet. And you know what? We're going to save the obviously the main event talk for when we get to the main event, but let me just put this out there. You know, it's a closely matched uh, fight, Oliveira versus Poirier on the odds. I've seen lots of opinions back and forth. There are some people that think it's going to be an easy night for one guy versus the other, but we're talking about... Charles Oliveira, who has 28 fights in the UFC. Uh, Dustin Poirier has 26 fights in the UFC, or 28 if you count his two in WEC. When was the last time either of those guys was in a bad fight? Uh, you, We lost your sound for just a sec there. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I put it on mute because I, I was answering something, and I, I forgot to put it back on. Uh I don't think Dustin Poirier has ever been a bad fight in his entire life. Um, you think about the fights that Dustin Poirier has been in, action fights, that you wouldn't even consider. Like, what is his best action fight of all time? Like, what is this, what is his best fight of all time? Not not his performance, but I mean just, oh, my God, that's fight of the year type. Would you go – would you get, would Gaethje be the one? Uh, Gaethje, you know, honestly – both of his fights with Alvarez were great for as long as they lasted. The Holloway fight, I mean, he won well, that's, that's, probably that's every exactly round. my point. I, I figured someone would say Gaethje because you think it actually was thinking Gaethje. Well, whatever it was. And then you say you leave all those other ones out. Yeah. That's how insane of a career this guy has had. And then Charles Oliveira, I mean, you're talking about the, the greatest submission artist in the history of the UFC who suddenly has knockout power and, and he knocked out his last foe to win the title. And then I think suddenly, because he's been doing it for a while now. Yeah. But, I mean, even in his kind of wilderness years, when he didn't seem to have a weight class he wanted to settle on and he lost some bad fights, even in defeat, he lost spectacularly. I mean, yeah. <laughs> These are two I, guys who have gone out with their shield or on it for years, and they're fighting each other now. Can, I'm going to pull back the curtain if this is okay and, and tell Please. me. If it's not, seriously, stop me because I don't want to ruin the year-end awards. But I want your opinion on this because I'm saying if Dustin Poirier beats Charles Oliveira, this is one of the easiest fighter of the year picks in history. I, I don't see how you can argue against it. If you – think about the year Dustin Poirier will have starting in – was it January when he fought Con? I think it was January, right? Yep. Starting in yeah. January – you face the biggest name in the history of the sport, avenging your worst loss. You knock him out. You you decide to not take the title fight and go with the money fight instead. You face Connor again. Now it's 1-1. You win the trilogy fight. Another TKO. And then you finally get the title shot. You've The only thing in your career that you're missing and then you finish it by beating Charles Oliveira. How could you argue any? I can't. I'm hearing the names that people are throwing out there, and I'm baffled that there's even a debate. Like to me, this is like uh, 
Tom Brady 50 touchdown season. This is <laughs> Barry Bonds 73 home run. Like, how is there a debate on who's the MVP? Like, how is there even a debate? If he wins, obviously Charles Oliveira can ruin this whole thing. But <laughs> if he wins, how is there even a debate? I don't want to hear about this guy be number three ranked guy, number four ranked guy. How do you beat the best, the, the biggest name in the history of the sport and, and win the title in the same year? How do you top that? I mean, it would be a hell of a year. He, If he beats Oliveira, he probably will be my fighter of the year. I mean, I'll look at some of the other guys that maybe – on paper accomplishments, not taking into account the kind of paydays that he got for beating McGregor, the kind of personal vindication he got for beating McGregor. Yeah. Sure. But like if Dustin Poirier wins, like he wouldn't trade his year for anybody else's. That's exactly my point that I made. in I was debating a couple people recently in the sure dog rankings, uh, not the rankings, the award section. Cause we, you know, we're, preparing for the end of the year and the way we do it, we kind of basically just vote and yeah. and majority rules. And I'm trying to get ahead of the pack, trying to put this idea <laughs> in these people's head. And I told him, be prepared. Cause if he wins, I'm going to be arguing hard. I think it just comes down to simply what you weigh. If you weigh, you know, rankings, if you weigh, Oh, he beat the number two guy and he beat the number three guy versus he beat, as you said, to me, there's this two reasons why you fight. You you fight for money and you fight for titles, and Dustin Poirier would get it both in the same year. Yeah. I, you know, I, again, he, he's probably going to be my fighter of the year if he wins this. Uh, not, not the place. We'll have those debates probably by the end of yeah. the, end of the uh, year if he wins. Well, I mean, we're going to have, like, some hot takes right after this main event on Saturday because if Poirier wins, we'll have this conversation. If Oliveira <laughs> wins, it's a little bit more of an open field. You know, is it him? Is it Usman? It, like, it could be him. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, let like we're skipping to, we're skipping to the end of the movie here. Shall we? Shall we kind of dig into these from the ground up? Because as you say, uh, this is as close to a rock solid card as the UFC has put out all year. Yeah, we're doing like uh, the beginning of Saving Private Ryan, and now we're back. <laughs> you know, going backwards now to what you know to the very beginning. Yeah, let's do it. This is, this is a great card. All right. Uh, UFC 269 kicks off with a flyweight contest between Jillian Robertson and Priscilla Cachoeira. Robertson, the 26-year-old Canadian out of American Top Team, is 9-6 and six overall. She is 6-4 and four since joining the UFC out of the 26th season of The Ultimate Fighter. I mean, out of, I believe she was eliminated in the fights to get into the house, but, you know, that was her springboard. She is on a two-fight losing streak, those two coming against Tyler Santos and Miranda Maverick, who does appear a little further up this card, who took a unanimous decision over her at UFC 260 back in March. She'll be taking on Cachoeira. The 33-year-old Brazilian is 10-3 and overall. She's 2-3 and in the UFC, uh, but has turned things around after a shaky start. She opened up her UFC run with about the most brutal assignment anybody could possibly draw as she was the chosen victim for Valentina Shevchenko's drop to flyweight. Uh, that ended predictably in a mauling and a second round submission. She then went on to lose two more against Molly McCann and Luana Carolina. She was kept on board by the UFC and has rewarded their faith by winning two in a row. She beat Shayna Dobson last February and then, uh, knocked out Gina Mazzani this May at UFC 262. 
despite the opposite trajectories in which they've gone in recent uh, fights, Robertson is a heavy favorite here, one of the biggest favorites on the card. She is minus 350 or so right now. Cachoeira around plus 290 or plus 300 as the substantial underdog. Uh, Keith, who do you like in this one and how? Yeah, so even though I kind of like gave this fight a little bit of a jab, saying that, you know, it just rounded up to 15, competitively, I'm intrigued by it because of the avenues for victory for both fighters. Uh, I'll start with Jillian Robinson. Now, Robinson, I, I think you I think you were wrong, though. I, I think she actually was in the house for the Ultimate Fighter show. Okay. Um, the only, ready, ready for pervert alert. Uh, the only reason why I remember it is all the girls, they like, I don't know, they went out of the town and Julian Robbins was wearing like a dress and she looks smoking hot. And I still remember that all these years later. Uh, hey, so that, uh, that's what tough is for. It's to <laughs> let us get to know fighters. Hey, I'm, I'm on, like, if that's what you remember, then the show did its job. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, I know that, that I'm, there's a couple other listeners out there that probably remember that too. Um, so, I've I've been really giving Jillian Robinson a pass on her striking for a while. I kind of always said, "Well, she's so young." As as we done the show, oh, she's 24, she's 25, she's 26 now. So that's still very young, but she's at the like the beginning of her prime years. So I'm going to be a little harder on her striking moving forward. Like, I needed to see more out of her. Her striking is just bad. She's stiff on the feet. She's very hittable. She lacks head movement. She has no power in her, in her boxing because she throws a lot of arm punches. She does throw a lot of kicks. And I've said this in the past. She really just used her striking as just distractions for her setup, for her entries. And a lot of times her entries, she used them really, really far away. She doesn't, she doesn't really disguise her entries well. The one thing I do like about her entries is when she gets in on a leg, she's very good at getting the opponent down because she cuts angles well, or she uses her leg to kind of like step behind. She also is like opportunistic where she'll like catch a kick and just bull rush her opponent to the canvas. Uh, she even like will jump guard or she tried a flying uh, arm bar against uh, Santos to get, get the fight to the ground, which was not a great idea because she's not that good on her back. She's definitely a top side grappler where she has smothering top control. The best thing about Jillian Robinson game that, that I, as I've been pretty tough on her so far, the one thing I like most is that she emphasizes position over submission um, and she has like she has good back takes. She does have six submission wins, but she doesn't rush the submission. She's very patient. Like I pointed out before when we talked about Jillian Robinson, the perfect example is a Courtney Casey fight, where she you know really worked Courtney Casey until the very end of the, of the fight. That's when she found the submission. If you put her on bottom, she will toss up submissions from her back, but she really struggles to scramble to her feet. And though we talk about you know her being a good grappler, she's a weak. Like takedown defense. I mean, she's been taken down and out grappled her last two fights. Now move over to uh, Cachoeira. She's a striker. She's a very aggressive striker, constantly moving forward. She she has struggled to. I don't know how intelligent she is. Uh, as a you know, fight intelligent. I'm not talking about obviously. I don't know how good her spelling is or something. But you know, cutting off the cage. She she doesn't really do that. She more follows. Uh, She's also not very technical. She she drops her hand. She's more of a brawler where she just wants to get in the pocket and load big, big shots. She almost will duck her head. I think it was Daniel Carmack pointed out one fight. Like she'll like duck her head and just throw a little little Vandalay silver in her, I said last time. But she has good power. She connects. I mean, you go to the Shana Dobson fight, uh, put her out in one shot. 
but also technically, uh, fl- you know, technical flaws in her in her defensive striking. Her chin is w- very high in the air, and she's a weak wrestler. She will look for takedowns, so I like that. She knows that you know she has to stay well rounded. But uh, and I'd say she's a decent grappler, but her takedown defense is a little weak and probably not that bad example. But she was taken down and battered by Valentina Shevchenko, which fair enough. Uh, as far as prediction go, I'm going to go with Robertson. Uh, I just think she can use Catchaware's aggression against her. Catchaware kind of pushes forward and throws these wild haymakers that'll give Robertson the chance to duck under one, get a takedown, s- smother. I think Robertson will do that for the entire fight. I don't think she's going to get a submission, but I think she's going to ride her out, get a decision. So give me Robertson by decision. Awesome. I, I agree with uh, basically your entire take there. Uh, Robertson, the problem is that she's not a great athlete and she's just not that physically strong. And you can see it in the women who've beaten her, you know, Miranda Maverick, Macy Barber, Tyler Santos, all physical specimens for the division. I mean, she was, she was made to order for Macy Barber to just like throw around and destroy. Uh, And then, Maverick just being physically stronger woman, much better striker, just made her look silly. Uh, I'm while I favor her as well. I mean, you know, spoiler, I'm I'm going to pick her to win as well. I am surprised that she's pushing like towards a four to one favorite over Casuera because Casuera is going to be bigger and stronger. She hits hard. She attacks with abandon. If she could clock Shayna Dobson in thirty seconds, she can clock Jillian Robertson in thirty seconds. And unless she comes running headlong at Robertson, which is what she probably will do, it's not like the takedowns are going to be automatic for Robertson either. However, I'm, I'm with you in that Kasha has gotten better results, but that's partly due to kind of being moving down from, you know, Shevchenko to McCann to Carolina to, you know, Dobson and, and Mazzani. I do think uh, Robertson is at least going to hold her own on the feet and not just get flustered and overwhelmed by Casuetta's Vanderlei Silva act and, or be able to get takedowns in enough of these rounds to win the rounds, even if she doesn't get the submission. So give me Robertson by decision as well. All right. Now that we have eaten our vegetables, it is time to move on to the rest of this card, which is basically pizza and ice cream. And right out of the gate, this fight is ice cream. Bantamweights, Randy Costa versus Tony Kelly, uh, Costa, the uh, native of Taunton, Massachusetts, uh, go New England, is six and two overall. He is two and two in the UFC. Uh, he lost his last outing to uh, Adrian Yanez by uh, knockout back at UFC on ESPN. Sandhagen versus Dillashaw in a fight that was a whole hell of a lot of fun while it lasted. That did put a skid on. Uh, back-to-back wins for Costa over Boston Salmon and Journey Newson. He'll be taking on Kelly, the 34-year-old uh, Louisiana native, is 7-2 and two overall. He's 1-1 one and one in the UFC. Uh, for what it's worth, he debuted at featherweight and lost, then dropped to bantamweight and did pick up the win. That win came over Ali Alkaizi at UFC Fight Night Moraes versus Sandhagen all the way back last October. Uh, Odds on this one do favor Costa. He's minus 175. Kelly is plus 155 on the comeback. Uh, This is going to be a whole 
like I said about Costa versus Yanez, this fight is going to be a whole hell of a lot of fun while it lasts because uh, Randy Costa, as you might expect of a Joe Lozon disciple, is a first-round fighter. He is a wild man who is coming for forward looking for the knockout uh, from the bell. If he gets it, great. If he doesn't get it, he he gets tired fast. Like, he has a miserable gas tank for 135, but it's not about the size of the gas tank. It's about how hard you're stepping on the pedal. You know what I mean? Uh, it's, it's like a guy who's, like, trying to sprint a marathon. Like, he's dusting everybody for the first 100 meters, but then, you know, they, they catch up with him. I think that's going to be enough uh, to get over the hump against Kelly here. I mean, Costa wants the first-round knockout. Uh, he's coming out with, you know, haymakers, kicks. I think he's going to catch Kelly, and I think he's probably going to knock him out. Uh, you know, that that's my in-depth, detailed X's and O's. Uh, give me Randy Costa over Tony Kelly by knockout. And... I think that's, I mean, Kelly, it'll probably be the best win of Costa's UFC career to date. I mean, he was brought along, I think, too early. You know, he went 4-0 on uh, the local scene. All of his fights were in pretty short order. They were all over in like a minute. I think between that, between being, you know, a, a Joe Lozon disciple, I think he would have benefited from not getting signed to the UFC like less than two years after his pro debut. But hey, it is what it is. And he's going to get his seasoning uh, under the bright lights now. He's going to lose some bad ones. But maybe we haven't seen a ceiling yet. I, I could see him adjusting his approach going forward, eh, kind of like Lozon did as he became more of a veteran and uh, and having some staying power here. Over to you, man. Yeah, so I'm glad you mentioned pizza and ice cream. And I think because we have such a big card, we can we can do our announcement, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so the, the new sponsors of, of this show, uh, Papa John's and, and Haagen-Dazs. <laughs> that, 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 that's not true. But, uh, just throwing it out there, if anybody knows anybody from those fine establishments or any other ones that they want to sponsor this show, uh, reach out to Ben. Uh yeah, don't reach out to me because if you reach out to me, I'm just going to keep the money myself. Um, <laughs> yeah, you, you talked about Randy Costa being you know rushed to the UFC. That's a really good point because – so here in New England, we're the biggest homers on the planet. <laughs> like the MMA media in New England, the New England MMA media is – and I, I love these guys, but they're also the biggest homers in the world. Like, And, and it's just the culture of New England. Like right now somewhere in a bar in New England, there's some guy saying like – Kevin Mala, like he should be in the Hall of Fame. Like he started the dynasty. Like this going on somewhere right now. Uh, and and people, I don't know how many people you remember Kevin Mala. There's probably Mike Heck will remember him, but everyone else, unless you're outside of New England. But like there's somebody arguing how, you know, Wes Welker is right up there with uh, Larry Fitzgerald or something. That's <laughs> just it's just how it is. And and Mac Mac Jones is the best quarterback in the league. But um, even the MMA. Media in New England was questioning Randy Coster's addition to the UFC when he was brought up. And that just doesn't happen around here. So, but he's always had the talent. And then going down to a team like Sanford MMA just obviously is going to blossom even better. Going with those killers. He's a really good striker. He can fight out of both stances. Really long arms. <clears throat> uh, good vision. Good accuracy. Uh, I said last time when we were breaking down his his film 
he's a he reminds me a lot of Chuck Liddell in the sense that he lands in weird angles that people don't see coming. I mean, he was doing it to Adrian Giannis. Giannis is obviously a much more technically sound striker, and Costa was putting on him very early. He's got huge power. He mixes punches and kicks well. I, I love that he throws leg feints, like he sets up his kicks without just throwing them. Hard leg kicks. Obviously, he hit that perfectly timed high kick against Journey Newsom. I described it as a Robert Whitaker type kick where he, he he's slipping like he's throwing a you know gonna slip a punch and he throws a kick over the top, which I love. Uh, some of the negatives about Randy Coster is he doesn't really like pressure. He likes to be just working from a boxing range. Brandon Davis had success in their fight with pressure. Adrian Giannis, when he started turning up the pressure, he turned around that fight. Uh, and you mentioned he gassed out. He he gassed out in the. Adrian Giannis fight, and I think Adrian Giannis is a more skilled, more polished fighter at this point. I I don't know what their end. I'm a little high on Giannis, but I don't know what the end will be. But right now, he's a little more advanced. Uh, good takedown defense, but he's a he's a weak offensive wrestler. Uh, he only really looks for wrestling when he's tired. Now move over to Tony Kelly. It's hard to really get a grasp on this guy. Is he's only fought three times in five years? He's been so inactive. But he's a he's a big guy for the weight class. He's long and lengthy, on the feet. He's very aggressive. He's a brawler. Um, he he's a very exciting fighter. He fights behind a high guard. He likes slicing elbows inside. He'll catch a kick to get a takedown, and he's got he's got tons of heart. Um, I should have said this earlier. His fight against Kevin Aguilar to get into the UFC was an absolute incredible fight. His fight against Kai Kamaka in the UFC was fight of the night. Um, but he looks for takedowns. He isn't a strong wrestler. He's he's a bit of a like a weak grappler, and he doesn't really set up his 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 takedowns well. And he will lose positions trying to go for things that's not there. So as far as prediction goes, th- this is I'll be honest. This is one of them. you got fifteen fights. It's hard to really spread out all your time study evenly. This is one of the fights I didn't do as much tape study as I wanted to. Uh, I'm I'm leaning with my local guy. Taunton's not very far from where I live. I'm taking Costa. I think he's a much better striker. I think he's going to piece up Kelly uh, when Kelly's moving forward. I think Kelly's going to walk into some power shots from Costa. Uh, I think he's going to go high, go low on him all day until he finally lands a kill shot. And I think Costa's going to do it in the very first round. So give me Costa my first round knockout. All right. There you have it. Two picks for the ice cream course to be a short one at UFC 269. Next up on the UFC 269 prelims is a featherweight matchup between Ryan Hall and Derek Minner. Hall, the 36-year-old Virginia native, is 8-2 and two in his mixed martial arts career. He is 4-1 and one since joining the UFC out of the 22nd season of The Ultimate Fighter. Uh, those four wins represented a scorching start to his uh, UFC run, marred only by the fact that he fought really sporadically. But the fun all did come to an end back in July at UFC 264 when Ilya Taporia punched him out in the first round. He will be taking on Minner, the 31-year-old Glory MMA and fitness product, is 26-12 and 12 over a well-traveled career. Uh, he is 2-2 two and two in the UFC. Uh, he made, I believe, a short notice debut against Grant Dawson, uh, got run over, came back from that with back-to-back wins over TJ Laramie and Charles Rosa, but the fun for him also came to an end, and that was at UFC on ESPN, Sandhagen versus Dillashaw, when he ran into Darren effing Elkins. Uh, Hall, pretty strong favorite here, minus 200, Minner's out there around plus 170 or so as the underdog. 
And I'll say that, okay, I think we've seen Ryan Hall's ceiling. You know, it was amazing. It's great that they call him the wizard because it is kind of magical that he was able to make such a limited game work on UFC level fighters for as long as he did. I mean, you know what he's going to do. He's going to come out. He's going to throw a really slow hook kick. If it doesn't land, he's probably just going to flop to his back and see if he can get you to jump into his guard, rinse and repeat. Uh, he'll slide in for a leg lock. Just, it's amazing that he made it work. And it's it's kind of funny just because he has such a self-effacing personality where he's like, I'm not, I don't blame you for booing. I wouldn't watch my fights either. I mean, how can you not love that? Uh, but running into Tapuria, a guy who is a 10 times better striker than Hall, a, a certainly not as decorated a grappler. You know, he doesn't have a bronze medal from Abu Dhabi. He's not a Mundial's winner like Hall is. But functionally for MMA, A-plus grappler and just 10 times as strong as Hall, the fun had to come to an end. As a bounce-back fight, you couldn't have an opponent much more made to order than Derek Minner. Yeah, everything I said about uh, everything we both said about Randy Costa just now about him coming out and going for broke, looking for a first round knockout. That's what Minner does looking for a first round submission, preferably a guillotine. Uh, unlike Tapuria, Minner's not going to be bigger and stronger than Holm. And his own best route to victory plays right in the Hall's wheelhouse. I mean, you think this man's going to come out like land two wild overhands and then jump a guillotine on Ryan Hall? I, that, if that's your route to victory, that that's that's not going to be smooth sailing for you. And as much as Minner is a submission machine, I mean, you look at his record, that's probably right beneath either my head or Keith right now. Uh, like 80% of his uh, wins are by submission. Most of those are by guillotine. But he also has a lot of losses by submission because he is a go-for-broke guy on the ground. And if the fight goes past the first round, kind of like Randy Costa, he's usually the more tired man. This all spells bad things against uh, Ryan Hall. Uh, I expect that Hall's going to get a submission here. Uh, I'm going to say it comes a little later. You know, Hall maybe won't want to play Minner's game in the first round because why give the guy his one little opportunity to, to beat you? So I'm thinking Hall gets it to the ground in the second round against a more tired Minner and gives us something sassy for the highlight reel. Probably a leg lock. He's one of the he's one of the few guys left in MMA that when he's going for a leg lock on the ground, I'm like, oh, just stop it. So yeah, Ryan Hall second round submission. Yeah, so Ryan Ryan Hall is is 36 years old, so you can't like that. And he looked really bad in his last fight against Taporia. Now Miller isn't Taporia. I think I speak for both of us. We both like Taporia a lot. But what I want to point about him is his age and and looking bad is I doubt that he's making improvements from fight to fight at this point of his career. So I feel like we've kind of have a you said he hit the ceiling. I think we also have a strong grasp of what he is at this point. He's a southpaw on the you know on the feet. He's southpaw. He keeps his hands really low. His hands are kind of slow. He throws one strike at a time when it comes to his boxing. He, but he's very intelligent. Like he's intelligent with the striking. I, you know, the thing that jumped out at me on on his film in the past that I want to point out again here is he uses movement really well. Like, you see him circling so much, and he uses movement because he tries to get you to chase him and to overextend a land of shot so he can just kind of go underneath you. 
He'll also throw a lot of kicks. He has that Holly Home push kick. Um, he does it to not to get range, not to hurt you, but just simply to get you to like grab his leg and, and start a a a scramble. Uh, he'll also just Imanari roll. Uh, and even when if you hit him and you catch him, he'll fall down on purpose, even when you didn't hurt him, because he wants you to think you hurt him to fall, to jump in. Uh, he actually did it against Darren Elkins really good. He tricked Darren Elkins into grappling with him by when Darren Elkins thinking he he knocked you know knocked him out. He also throw like these wild things, spinning wheel kicks, spinning back fists, um, because it, well one it hurts, but worse is if if he misses he can just he just like takes his momentum to the ground, trying to get you to like uh, jump on him. But as you mentioned, his nickname is perfect. He is an absolute wizard on the ground. Um, He's not a strong wrestler, like he, but he's got to find a way to get it to down. I love that you mentioned leg locks. That is an absolute specialty of him. We've said this before. Like very few f- fighters should be going for ankle locks. Well, Ryan Hall is one of them that should. Yeah, not every position, but in most cases, he's going for leg lock. The fight's over. Um, the one negative about his grappling is he'll lay on his back a little too much, and he'll get himself hit. Instead of trying to sweep or something like that, he'll continue to try to throw up shots, and we have seen him get a little battered laying on his back. Now, Minner is a very fast starter. Like I said last time, he's got like 25 submissions in the very first round, or 25 finishes in the very first round. But on the feet, uh, he, he's a he's a lot more advanced than Hall on the feet. He's high output. He also uses a lot of movement, though his strike his his boxing is pretty bad. He lacks technique. He throws a lot of Looping overhand punches. He keeps his chin very high. He backs straight up. He, he does throw a lot of kicks, but his kicks aren't very good. And he doesn't have any power. But he is a good grappler, as you mentioned. He's a former NCW wrestler. Good doubles, good singles. Definitely more of a wrestle game to his to his grappling. He's very good at winning scrambles. Um, if he gets his opponent down, he will look to pass guard. <clears throat> Sorry. Uh, but he, for a guy who has an NCAA wrestling background, he's got weak takedown defense because he won't fight off a, a, a takedown. He's so confident if the, when the fight hits the ground. He's got 22 submission wins. He also, uh, he's like the opposite of Ryan Hall. Like Hall will go for, well, he'll go for leg locks, I shouldn't say, and heel hooks and, and knee bars. He'll go for all that stuff. But he's more of a guy that if he you leave his neck out, guillotines, um, you know those kind of dars chokes. He's he's got to lock one of those on. Uh, he's he submitted to TJ Laramie. He outgrappled Charles Rosa, which and he's a black belt. But I don't know. I don't know. How, I don't know how we feel about that. Uh, but I love that you pointed out that for a guy who's known for his submissions, he has been submitted. That he's been submitted eight times too. It's not like one or two times in a scramble. I mean, and the other thing that's concerning is he gassed out in his last fight. Like he was dominating. Uh, Darren Elkins in his last fight, and Elkins just survived. We were swearing at—I I sh- I shouldn't say we—I was swearing afterwards, based on in a, in what's the word I'm looking for in euphoria of, yeah. of, of Darren Elkins' performance. So as far as predictions go, this this card is loaded with really hard fights to pick. Like when the main event's super hard to fight. Like you, I know you said in the in the preview that uh, some people think one fighter is going to blow out the other fighter. I don't, but this is not one of them. This is a terrible stylistic matchup for Derek Miller. I think Hall will somehow find a way to get this fight to the ground, whether he Emil Nari rolls, he 
lands a takedown or Minner just takes him down himself, initiates the grab. I can see Minner thinking, like, I want to show that I can outgrapple him. If he does that, he's going to pay the price. Hall's going to submit him. I think Hall's going to do it in the very first round. So give me Hall by first round submission. And that's it. Two strong calls for Ryan Hall to get back on the fun train with a submission of Derek Minner. We now head back down to the flyweight division for yet another promising banger between Alex Perez and Matt Schnell. Perez, the 29-year-old uh, man from where it all began. Not all of it, but where Sherdog began. Lemoore, California. Uh, 29-year-old, 24-6 and six overall. Uh, product of Dana White's Contender Series uh, Season 1 and has gone 6-2 and two in the UFC since then. Most recently challenged for the flyweight title. Uh, didn't go so well as he was... Uh, guillotined by Davis and Figueredo in the first round last November at UFC 255. That snapped a three-fight winning streak for Perez over Mark De La Rosa, Jordan Espinoza, and Juicier Formiga. He'll be taking on Schnell, the 31-year-old uh, Louisianan by way of Texas. Or no, I believe he's Texan by way of Louisiana. Anyway, he is 15-6 and six overall. He is 5-4 and four in the UFC. Coming off a loss in his last fight, though in fairness to him, uh, as a habitual flyweight, he lost a unanimous decision to Hogerio Bontarin in what be started as a scheduled bantamweight fight and then became a catchweight fight as Bontarin went on to miss weight. So fighting 12 pounds above his accustomed weight class. Uh, but nonetheless, Perez, another one of the heaviest favorites on the card. He's minus 320, Schnell plus 255 or plus 260 uh, as the underdog. Uh, Keith, another... Scrap between two action fighters, uh, two good fighters. Perez looking to get it back on track after, well, being shown he wasn't quite ready for prime time at the very top echelon of the division. Uh, who gets it done on Saturday and how? So the first thing that jumps out to me is a lot of times we'll, we'll complain about where they put flyweight fights. We'll say, oh, wow, these are two highly ranked flyweights. It should be much higher in the card. But then when you look at a card like this and you're like, well, I can understand it. <laughs> it just, the entire card is loaded top to bottom. I can't stress it enough. Uh, Alex Perez, you know, his first fight back from his title shot, thing that always stood out to me about him is just how big he is. I mean, there's not many people that makes Davidson Figueredo look small or, or, or at least someone who's as big as Davidson Figueredo in, in the weight class. On the feet, he's a pressure fighter, tight, high guard boxing style, accurate, accurate striker. He's got a really good, powerful right hand. I like that he targets the body. Uh, you can tell he spent a lot of time in the in the boxing uh, room doing boxes because he has a very boxing style to his game. I love those calf kicks. The calf kicks are some of the best in in the fight game. Uh, and I know everyone's going to remember Davis Figueroa submitting him in the first round. I said this when we did the recap. He was doing well on the feet. He was actually, you know, until he got caught, he was winning. I think, you know, it was a very short fight. So, you know, take it for what will. It's not a 25-minute fight. But he was doing well against, at that time, the champion Davis and Figueroa. Uh, very good wrestler uh, from that, you know, very strong California scene out there. Uh, I don't I don't remember where he wrestled in college. But I remember he wrestled. I think he wrestled for a really decorated high school team if if i recall yeah, he, and he was a, a high school all-american high school there you go i, I yeah. knew he was, he, he's very good no, it, it was it was one of the lamore high schools it's why yeah. i remember you know because yeah, he's from lamore same town as uh yeah and, I, yeah and i think lamore is like a very decorated uh wrestling and so if you're in california and i'm 
and you follow the rest and see and I'm wrong, then then smack me. Uh, but good, good top control, good ground and pound. Just overall, just n- nothing jumps out you, at you other than probably the leg kicks about Perez. But there's no like glaring weakness in this game either. Now move on to Snell. Kind of the same thing. He's a well-rounded fighter. Good footwork. He also uses pressure, so that's going to be intriguing in this fight. You know, he's he's very aggressive. He has some power in his hands. He rocked it. You know, he rocked Pantoja in the fight, uh, even though he lost that fight. He hurt Bondarin in, in, in his last fight. Um, he really good at setting up his shots with feints uh, from distance. But when he gets into the pocket, he he does have a brawler in him. He'll slide to the pocket and he's willing to brawl. The problem is, is his chin is more suited for an outside point fighter, which he does really well. He does really well on the outside. But we've seen him get rocked. I mean, I talked about him hurting Pantoja. Then he also got knocked out by Pantoja. Uh, Tyson Nam hurt him. Tyson Nam, you know, uh, is a much lower level flyweight than he is. But he's also a very good grappler. He's got eight submission wins. He likes uh, to attack the head, guillotines. Uh, he can get subs off his back, triangles and arm bars. <laughs> I said this before, and I want to put it out. He's a very good grappler, maybe a little too overconfident when, he, when you pull guard against Pantoja. Um, but he he did quickly get back up. He realized like, that was a bad mistake, and he got right back up. So as far as the prediction goes, this is a hard one. This really is. Like the, I, think the, I think the betting line is way off. I think it should be pretty much a pick em, uh, uh, close to a pick em. Uh This fight is really dope. Snell is really good. But if you remember, I picked Perez to beat Figueredo. I was that high in Perez. I'm not jumping off the bandwagon yet. I, I still think like he, he could be a special flyweight. So I'm going to go with Perez. I'm going to say it's going to be a close, fun battle. I'm going to say Perez wins by decision. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you uh... – kind of brought up the thing the things you did about Chanel because a brawler whose chin is better sorted to being an outfighter is the perfect way to describe him I mean until the Bontarine fight his UFC losses were all first round knockouts and I mean they were all can I jump in in real quick yeah we might have another flyweight now that fits the same description but carry on on the same card yeah (laughs) uh and, you know, I was there cage side for the, the Bontarine fight, his, his last fight. The problem for me was not that Bontarine won because he's a pretty good fighter. And it's not even that he blew weight and was even big for Bantamweight, which is where we're fighting, because he's not that big. I guarantee you Perez walks around heavier than Rogerio Bontarine does. It's that Schnell just didn't look great. That was the first fight where it's not, well, okay, you know, he lost his head, got into a big brawl and just got clipped. Just He, he looked kind of listless. I don't know if he just didn't fight as well with like that extra weight on him or, or what it is, but it, it left me struggling to look for ways where he might upset Perez. Cause I'm with you. I'm, I'm high on Perez. I didn't pick him to beat Figueredo, but it would not surprise me at all. If he makes it back to another title shot at some time in the next year or two. Uh, but yeah, like if, if Schnell had looked fantastic against Bonterine, I I'd be looking harder for ways where he might pull off the upset, but here, yeah, I'm just going to go with the main chance. I, I think, Perez's style is going to draw Schnell into the type of fight that has typically cost him in the past. And Perez is going to either find his chin on the feet or get him down and mash him. So give me Alex Perez by second round finish. And I'm going to say it's probably a TKO. 
Next up on the UFC 269 prelims is a flyweight matchup between Miranda Maverick and Aaron Blanchfield. Maverick, the 24-year-old Missouri native by way of Virginia, is 9-3 overall. She's 2-1 in the UFC, uh, won her first two UFC fights over Leona Jojua and Jillian Robertson before being matched up this past July against Macy Barber and dropping a split decision, which, for what it's worth, unanimously the media members on MMADecisions.com, like 29 to nothing, scored it in favor of Maverick. So make of that what you will. At the very least, it was an incredibly close fight. At the worst, it was an abject robbery. Uh, at any rate, she'll be taking on Blanchfield, the 22-year-old New Jersey native, is 7-1 and one overall. She's 1-0 and oh in the UFC, made her debut in September, uh, taking a dominant unanimous decision over Sarah Alpar. Odds on this one are fairly close, but Maverick is a slight favorite. She's minus 135, Blanchfield plus 115. Uh, Keith, I'm going to turn this over to you for your pick first, but before I do that, I'm going to tell you that this fight doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Like, and I'm not saying it doesn't matter because these women are not good fighters. You and I both think they're outstanding fighters and probably the two best prospects in their age cohort in this division and possibly any of the women's divisions. I'm going to tell you that that's almost the reason this fight doesn't matter. At age 24 and 22, respectively, this fight, five years from now, they'll be fighting for a title and it'll be like us thinking about the first Dustin Poirier versus Max Holloway fight or Max Holloway versus Conor McGregor, where like, you know, when Poirier and Holloway prepared to fight, did anybody really look back at their first fight for a clue as to how this fight was going to go? Or if, yeah. you know, Holloway and McGregor had ever, like, actually collided for a title when it looked likely, were they going to look back on, like, you know, yeah, sprained knee McGregor wrestling Holloway? No. So I'm, I'm being facetious, of course. This fight matters. It's a, it's a huge, you know, showcase for, again, two mm -hmm. of the most exciting prospects in the division. But whichever, whichever woman loses this fight, like, their prospect status does not take that much of a hit. And I strongly suspect that if they pan out like you and I think they will, these two are going to meet again for much higher stakes. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was there for the McGregor-Holloway first. Oh, I almost said first fight. The only fight. They fought each yeah. other. And I can tell you, nobody in attendance give a crap about Max Holloway. <laughs> you know, like most people didn't. You know, the hardcores, I knew who he was. But yeah. the majority of people didn't know who he was. Uh, I Yeah, I hate this matchup. Like, stylistically, is it a fun fight? Absolutely. But I think you hit the nail right on the head. If this was boxing, they wouldn't. These two females wouldn't fight each other for another ten years. Like before they, <laughs> like they'd be in their thirties before they fought each other. They both have forty wins, you know, and thirty-five knockouts or something. If they, uh, I, I like that you pointed out the Macy Barber fight that most people believe, everybody believes Maverick won. That said, it was still a close fight. Mm -hmm. I just want to point that out there because like a lot of people say. Robbery and and I understand that when you have as you, you would say would you say twenty nine people in MMA decisions? Yeah, like everybody. Yeah, like literally and that's every okay. single person. I'm okay with yeah. that. That's a rivalry. I mean, I, 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 you know, that's that's a robbery. Uh, but it was still close. I just want to point that out there. Like, it wasn't it wasn't horrendous? Erin Blanchfield and I'm, I'm I promise I would say this every single time she fights. So I'm going to keep my streak going. Erin Blanchfield should be undefeated. Erin Blanchfield beat Tracy Cortez. 
I, I challenge everybody to watch that fight. Like, Eric Blitrio won that fight. Anyways, so now let's move on to the, the actual fighters. So that's a shame because that's Cortez's best win. <laughs> yeah, but it was it was close. But yeah, yeah. Anyways, Chase Cortez is a good fighter, but yeah. uh, so Miranda Mar- Maverick. You, you mentioned they're twenty four, and I think the other one's twenty two. Maverick, she's so physically imposing. I mean, you look at her. I mean, she's got she's just she's not even like big muscles. She's just shredded. Like she she could be on like a muscle magazine. Uh, she's southpaw. She's a Muay Thai specialist. She's got good footwork. She does really good to dart in and out of range with speed, uh, good volume. She attacks with hard combinations. She does well to keep her space by using a, her, you know, her distance by using a like karate style push kick, similar to what Holly Holm uses. But she's really good in all range. She gets in close. She looks for elbows. I mean, she busted up Joshua with it with a clean elbow. Clinch is a strength for her. She just can. That's where she can use her muscle and her brute strength and just batter fighters. She's a good wrestler. Good timing on her entries. Good top control. Her. I like that she like. We pointed this out last time. She'll look for like one limb and hold it down, similar to like the Dagestani's goes for the Dagestani handcuff. Brutal ground and pound. Good back takes. Has four submission wins. Uh, some of the negatives though, she does chase a submission that isn't there. And I think the biggest issue of her game is her defensive wrestling. Uh, I mean, I like that she won late grappling against Jillian Robinson, but she was taken down in that fight. And and she also faded against Macy Barber. She lost the third round to Macy Barber, which is why she lost the fight. Now, most of us agree you win the first two, and it shouldn't matter. But now Aaron Blanchfield, she's only 22. Uh, she's not very technically sound in her boxing. I mean, she's, you know, she's she's not the cleanest boxer, but she makes up for it with three things: great output, surprising power, like especially for her age, and just a mean streak. If Erin Blanchard has the chance to finish the fight, she will find a way to finish the fight. Uh, she does. She does some things I like. She does slip her punch as well. She does. Check leg kicks. She throws a lot of leg kicks herself. She has a good high kick. She knocked Victoria Leonardo without with a high kick in, in Invicta. But also, she just breaks fighters with forward pressure. She's nonstop on the gas. Great entries where she is a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt. She's an elite Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt. She's an EBI world champion. Like That's how good her Jiu-Jitsu is. Smothering top control. Good ground and pound. In, and obviously, she's a submission threat. So as far as prediction goes... This is the hardest fight in the entire card to pick for multiple reasons. One, I like both of them. I, I, I don't want to pick against them because there were, they were two fighters that I was really pumping up before they entered. So I almost feel feel um, like sentimental about it <laughs> to pick against them. I don't want to pick against them. Uh, it's also tough because of their age, 22 and 24. They're at the age where you make like humongous strides of improvement. Not to mention... Marina Maverick has been like a student this whole time. I think she's might be finishing school or she's done with school. So if, if that's the case and she's not this, I, I think she was like going for a master's. Or she was like, yeah, yeah. She's going for a master's degree. So she's done with that. I don't know. I don't, she might not be. So don't, I, I don't, I don't follow her Instagram as close as other people. But if that is the case, that's another area where you'd say, well, she's focusing 100% on her fighting. Could she be even better? I mean, these are these are all the questions, which is why I hate making a pick in this fight. Maverick is definitely the more well-rounded fighter. 
But Blanchfield is elite in one area, which I don't know if Maverick is. I think her grappling, I think Blanchfield's grappling's elite for the division. You know, she's not, she's not Mackenzie Dern. So I'm not saying that, but I mean, you know, I shouldn't say elite. She's very good, like very, very good in one area. And Maverick has shown uh, defensive wrestling being probably the weakest part of her game. So if Blanchfield can take her down, wear her out, ground and pound her, maybe even find a submission, that wouldn't surprise me. Nothing in this fight would surprise me if, if Maverick just outstrikes her, stronger, she's a little older. Um, that wouldn't surprise me. But I'm going to say Blanchfield gets the wrestling going, and I'm going to say Blanchfield wins a, a slight upset uh, by decision. Awesome. And I can totally see it going that way. Her fight against Sarah Alpar was a little bit of a revelation to me because you pointed out that she has all the component parts of a really good MMA game. Obviously, her her grappling is outstanding. Her striking is coming along and it's bolstered by her physical gifts and her attitude. I mean, cold-blooded is a good way, you know, to describe her. But until the Alpar fight, I'm not sure she ever put them all together. Uh, into like a dominant performance other than just, you know, lancing Victoria Leonardo with a head kick. She always felt like someone to me whose fights were a little closer than they needed to be against someone that she really should have outclassed. And against Sarah Alpar, where, yeah, she's better everywhere than Sarah Alpar, just complete domination from from pillar to post. That makes me feel better about her taking on someone in Maverick. Uh, but I'm going to go in the opposite direction. I'm going to be the the chicken and take the slight favorite here and say that Blansfield isn't quite as ready for this uh, meeting as Maverick is. Uh, you, you pointed out that Maverick does a really good job of bouncing in and out. I mean, part of that is by necessity. She's one of the shortest women in the division, uh, you know, and so that's what she needs to do to hit and not be hit. Uh, I, I'm thinking she's going to be able to use that to... I, I think she's definitely going to outstrike Blanchfield on the feet, and I think it's going to it's going to be a little more frustrating than expected for Blanchfield to try to get it to the ground if she wants it there. And once it gets there, obviously she's got all the credentials in the world. And in the time she's been on the ground in her UFC or in her uh, MMA career, she's looked great. But Maverick is no dummy there either. So uh, I'm going to say Maverick does come through here. Give me Miranda Maverick by decision. After Five fights to kick off the UFC 269 card featuring not a single fight over 145 pounds. We do finally move up to some of the bigger guys. It is a middleweight match between Andre Muniz and Eric Anders. Muniz, the 31-year-old Brazilian, is 21-4 and overall. He's a perfect 3-0 and since joining the UFC out of back-to-back -back appearances on the third season of Dana White's Contender Series and the first season of Dana White's Contender Series Brazil. And that sounds really exciting and exotic until you realize that they were shot in the same building that first season of Dana White's Contender Series Brazil, you know, shot at the, at the UFC Apex. Anyway, uh, his most recent fight was an eye-opener. We've already talked about the only man to submit uh, BJ Penn in MMA competition. Well, Andre Muniz is the only man to submit Ronaldo Jacare Souza in MMA competition, and if anything, was even more eye-opening as he torqued Jacare's arm for a first-round technical submission via armbar. Uh, before that, he defeated Bartosz Fabinski and Antonio Hoyo. He'll be taking on Anders, who 
you may or may not have heard, played college football. Uh, 34-year-old out of Alabama is 14-5 and five with one no contest overall. He's 6-5 and five with one no contest in the UFC. Uh, coming off a bit of a strange run, he had back-to-back fights with Darren Stewart. The first one ended via no contest uh, when he landed an illegal knee. They decided to run it back at light heavyweight for whatever reason, and he won a more straightforward unanimous decision. He is now back down at middleweight and looking to get it done against Mooney's. The odds makers do not favor him to do so. He is plus 115. The Brazilian is minus 135. Keith, uh, how do you like this fight, and how do you think it goes? <laughs> yeah. Um, what what school did Eric Anders play for? Auburn. Oh, was it? <laughs> no, it was Alabama. Oh, okay. I, I... <laughs> I was like, no, no, I said it second guess. I'm like, oh, wait, wait, it's Alabama, right? I, I, I was going to fill out the joke with like, oh, I haven't heard that school. Yeah. Um, so Eric Anders, uh, he's so, I don't know, he's so inconsistent. Like, I never know what you got to get with him. Like, one fight, he, like, just even the Darren Stewart fights, you know, he looks great in the first fight. The second fight, he wins, and he still looks like kind of blah. And that's just like, that's his career in, in a nutshell. One fight, he looks great. The next fight, he looks terrible. Um, skill wise, he's, he's southpaw. He's aggressive on his feet, good power. Uh, I think his power is a little overrated though. I think the, uh, the commentary team likes to exaggerate a little bit. He looks like he should hit really hard. Yeah. I mean, he was, That's a, where they... <laughs> he was a linebacker that got a, got a sack in the national championship game or fumble or something like that. You know, he's, he played for Alabama. Like he, yeah. Like I don't, I don't want to fight a linebacker from Alabama. Like I, <laughs> I assuming like I'm assuming the the starting linebacker for Alabama can hit harder than 95% of men. Yes. No. Uh, with it. but uh yeah so like go back to like the Stewart fight. He hurt him bad in the first fight. So he shows he has that power. He marches forward, but he's very slow and he's kind of lumbering and he's you think of Anders and you you think college football player and you think you're the lead athlete, but you don't see that in the cage. He's kind of slow. Uh, he relies way too much on his overhand laps. He just throws it over and over again, trying to end the fight with, with one punch. He can be he can be gun shy at times. He can have low output at times. Um, the one thing he doesn't do, I wish he would do more though, is grapple. I actually think he's a better grappler than he gets credited for. Like he he gets a lot of takedowns. Um, he's heavy on top, um, but he has gassed out and pa- like he's had good cardio in fights. He's gone five rounds and then he's had fights where he's gassed out of the pass. Uh, his chin is questionable as he's been hurt so many times. I go back to the, the clear round tree, put a clinic on him. Tiago Santos murdered him. Even, even Gerald Mershot hurt him. Now move on to when he's, when he's the guy that I wasn't as high on him as he's shown. Like him coming into the UFC, like I didn't expect him to have this much success. I'm gonna say something that might be controversial. He might be a better athlete than than Anders is. Like, no, I don't. I, I don't think he uh, could hit the football sled or run a forty faster than than uh, Eric Anders. But his just his movement in the cage is just better. He's he's a little quicker. Uh, as far as his striking, he's not a very technical boxer. He, he lacks head movement. He tends to cover up and just pillar, which I don't like. But he throws a lot of kicks. Uh, he uses his striking to he, he uses his striking well to close distance and to distract for his takedowns. 
Uh, he's got good entries. He's, he's got fast entries. Uh, he can get some. He can get body lock takedowns. He can get uh, just shoot through your hips takedowns. Uh, he's willing to just clinch up against the fence, drop down on your legs, and, and just pull his opponent out. And he's a very good grappler. I mean, outstanding top control. He's a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt. He's got subs from both on top and on bottom. He's got subs in scrambles. He's got subs standing up on the feet, like looking, like describing a guillotine while he's on his feet. So I like that. Obviously, he's got 14 submissions, and you said it best. His 14th one is going to be as, as, as impressive of a submission you'll find in MMA, even at Jacare, you know, one foot out the door, ending his career. You you break Jacare's arm, that's still extremely impressive. Uh, so as far as prediction goes, I think Muniz has proved me wrong. I, I, I still don't put him in that contender, and I know we're ranking him in the Sherdog rankings. I still don't view him as a contender yet. But I simply don't trust Anders. I think Muniz is going to find a way to get the fight to the ground. I think he's going to have a little more trouble submitting Anders as people think he will when he gets to the ground. But if he can break Jacare's arm, he should be able to break. Uh, he should he should break Eric Anders' arm like Eric Anders broke through the Miami <laughs> offensive line. I have no idea who they played in the national <laughs> Tim Tebow, I don't know who they played. But give me Muniz by second-round submission. Right now, there's somewhere there's somewhere like super hardcore NCAA football fan who listens to this and just he's never gonna listen to our broadcast again because of me not knowing enough about college football. <laughs> I, I I like what you pointed out about their respective athleticism. I think if you threw both these guys in the NFL combine where they're doing like the little shuttle drill and you know the standing broad jump, I think they might do do comparably. Uh you you made the only point that I really wanted to get across, which is how inconsistent Anders is. Like, if you could guarantee me we're getting good Anders this time, I'm taking Anders at plus 115 all day long. Because good Anders is hard to take down. And good Anders, yeah, he's kind of slow and deliberate, but it, it keeps him from gassing out as badly as Mooney's has in, in some of his fights. So I, I have Anders all day if it's good Anders, where... Uh, you know, Mooney's is like backing off from Anders, like huge overhands. He's do- doesn't get the fight to the ground as often or as easily as he wants. He gets tired first and Anders wins a ho-hum decision. Unfortunately, I have no faith that we're getting good Anders and bad Anders. Maybe he gets tired first. Maybe he overswings and gives Mooney's an easy takedown. And that's the whole first round gone. Even if he survives, he's lost the first round. So yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Uh, I'm going to say uh, Mooney's wins at least two out of three rounds, maybe all three, in the, not a fight of the night candidate, but uh, another clear step up for, yeah, a, a surprising Brazilian up-and-comer. Next up, we stay in the middleweight division, and it is Jordan Wright versus Bruno Silva. Wright, the 30-year-old Californian who goes by the Beverly Hills Ninja, is 12-1 and with one no contest. Uh, he is two and one in the UFC. He won his debut over Ike Villanueva at light heavyweight uh, by first round doctor stoppage TKO, was knocked out by Joaquin Buckley, and then came back at UFC 262 in May and uh, knocked out Jamie Pickett in the first round. He will be taking on Silva, the 32 year old Brazilian who goes by Blindado, which in Portuguese means armored, as in wearing armor. And he 
he did an interview with Sherdog's Christian Stein this week that's on the front page. You should uh, check it out. And he tells the story behind his nickname. And I'm just going to tell you that I don't think he's telling the truth because it would be the most Brazilian fighter thing ever for his teammates to take a look at the physique on this dude and just say, oh, yeah, he looks like he's wearing a suit of armor and make that his nickname. Like, you know, that that that's it. Like they call him that because he looks like he's wearing a suit of armor. Anyway, 21 and six overall. Uh, 2-0 in the UFC with a first-round knockout of Wellington Terman and a third-round knockout of Andrew Sanchez. That extends his overall uh, win streak to six in a row, all of them by knockouts. And in fact, I think almost all of his uh, MMA wins are by knockout. Yeah, 18 out of 21 wins by knockout. Uh, he is one of the heaviest favorites on the card. He's minus 345, right, plus 285. Uh, I'll say th this. I think one of these fighters is slightly overrated and one is slightly underrated. And like, I'm not saying the overrated one is bad. Just, you know, like I, I don't think Bruno Silva is quite at the level the, the hype train, you know, is making him out to be. But you know what? When you come into the UFC on four straight knockout wins, including one over Alexander Slomenko, you take two years off for USADA, you come back and you knock out your first two uh, victims in the UFC, the hype train is going to get rolling. I understand why it's happening, but yeah, I, you know, the role might need to be slowed a little bit. And conversely, you know, Jordan Wright, he's got kind of a goofy nickname, kind of a goofy demeanor. He's got that karate based style. And, you know, I, I think it might lead at least a few people. And I, I was guilty of it, of prematurely dismissing what some of what he actually can get done in the octagon. So, but having said that, and, you know, thinking that, you know, the, the line is probably reflecting that a little bit too, and it's a little bit exaggerated, I think this is a good matchup for Bruno Silva. Uh, because Jordan Wright, you know, he's a tricky striker. His his karate-based style, which, you know, you can see in his stance, you can see in how he, he throws his kicks, it, it kind of, you know, confuses and distracts and befuddles some people. It definitely got Ike Villanueva looking out of sorts. But... What I know about Jordan Wright is, you know, because of Lyoto Machida, the UFC announcers will always kind of tack on the adjective elusive to any karate-based fighter. Jordan Wright isn't that elusive, and his chin is not great. So, I mean, he's kind of like, you know, end-of-career Machida instead of prime Machida, where, okay, yeah, people are catching him, and the, the chin's not there anymore. His no contest on the contender series was him getting starched by Anthony Hernandez and Hernandez popping for weed. So unless you think like weed helped Anthony Hernandez get, that, get that knockout, knockout. You, know, you know, and then, and then Joaquin, Joaquin Buckley, Buckley also starched him. If those guys can do that, Bruno Silva, I'm thinking he's going to as well. I don't think he's going to be befuddled by rights, you know, uh, striking style, Silva is an extremely uh, experienced striker who, I mean, he's a Muay Thai guy himself, but he's faced all types on his way up. He spent a lot of time fighting in Russia, in M1, tons of uh, karate and, uh, you know, basically wushu-influenced uh, strikers over there. He beat the crap out of Alexander Slomenko. Like, nothing Jordan Wright has is going to confuse Bruno Silva. Give me Bruno Silva by first-round knockout, and the hype train will keep ratcheting up. 
Yeah, Bruno Silva, he does have a lot of hype. It's funny because uh, I've got some hate by the Bruno Silva fans. He, he has a lot of strong fan base. Is People did not like when I said I wasn't sold on him yet. And then you just did the same thing. So um, I picked him twice in both his UFC fights to win by knockout. I think I picked first-round knockout in both fights. But saying that I'm not ready to crown the next champion was uh, – that's all they had needed to hear, not my extra prediction. Uh, you can't but, please everybody. Yeah. So let me break down uh, Silva's skills. So I think you really did a great job, like, breaking down both their games. Like, there's nothing you said that I disagree with. I mean, Silva, he can fight out of both stances. He's got power in both hands. He's got crushing power in both hands. He's like a middleweight Francis Ngannou. What I mean by that is he doesn't even have to – to land clean you catch a grazing shot with this guy and he's going to put you out uh he's very um well he fights in blitz blitzes he'll take like long periods of time off but when he comes in like he's bringing a whole arsenal of to his game he's bringing the the entire cavalry when he when he crashes in throwing big looping shots they're all wild he's he's open to counters because he winds up and he throws from his hips but if he lands he's got to you know he's got to put you out he throws in flying knees. He's exciting like that. Strong plum clinch. I mean, you talked about Alexander Slomenko, which is still a pretty, you know, it's it's not prime Bellator Alexander Slomenko, but still a pretty good, you know, you know, fight before you get in the UFC. And he batted Slomenko in the clinch. Like that's where he beat him up a little short, the Houston Alexander type uh, uppercuts and and short hooks on the outside and. Right away, about 50, 50% of our listeners said who. Uh, the one, and this is why I'm not sold on him yet. The one negative, and when I'm saying sold, I'm talking about top five middleweight. That's what I'm talking about. I'm not saying, like, he, he's not very good. Is Wellington Terman and uh, Andrew Sanchez both had success taking him down, holding him down, winning big portions of the fight. I mean, like, the Sanchez fight, like, Sanchez looked like he was about to win before uh, Bruno caught him. He also struggled to get up. Like he, 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 you know, eventually he got these big explosions to get up, but it was after long periods of time of, of struggling to get up. Now, Jordan Wright, he's big for the weight class. That's good. As you mentioned, he has a karate background. And, and, he's, and it's funny. I love that you talked about like fans kind of hating on the guy because of his nickname and, and stuff, but he's got a very exciting style. Like he's a fun yes. fighter. Uh, he he'll he'll throw out some spinning attacks, but I love that you you pointed out just because you have this karate style doesn't mean you're a great athlete. He's slow. <laughs> he's like like there's a fat guy doing a taekwondo class right now somewhere in America. Hey, you know what is Beverly Hills Ninja? It's a Chris Farley movie. Oh, like yeah, you know, there you go. <laughs> there you go. So um, he he keeps his hands low. He keeps his chin high. He pulls his his chin right back. As you mentioned, Anthony Hernandez knocked him out. Uh, Joaquin Buckley, what it is what it is. Joaquin Buckley couldn't hurt anybody. But uh, the one thing I do like though about Wright is he's starting to show some power in his own game as he's advanced in the UFC. He's got a good plum clinch. It's actually probably better than his outside striking. Uh, he did well against Ike Villanueva in that area. Knees up the middle. Like he's more of a grinder than you think. He, he can do some good work in there. He's an okay wrestler. He's got submission threat. He's got some strong ground and pound. We saw the last fight against uh, Jamie Pickett. As far as prediction goes, so I did build all that up just to say, like, right better wrestle right away. Because if he doesn't, 
with that chin and Silva's power, Silva's going to test it, and it's only going to take one shot. So listen very tentatively, Silva fans. This is the third time I'm taking Silva to win. This is the third time I'm taking a win by first-round knockout. But then I'm going to say I'm not sold. Then you can send me some more hate. <laughs> there you go. Two strong picks for uh, not strong Bruno's. enough. Not strong not enough, st- though. N- never strong enough. You know, can't, can't please everybody. But we both think he's going to get it done by first round knockout on Saturday. Next up on the UFC 269 prelims, we have the fight that on any other card, if you've ever listened to any of our programs before, you would be waiting for me to call the obligatory heavyweight slobber knocker. I'm not going to say that about this fight because I'm too positive about this card all in all. And for what it's worth, if you're going to get an unranked heavyweight fight or a borderline heavy ranked fight, there are two things in its favor. One, this one should be a hell of a lot of fun. And two, at least it's not on the main card. It is Augusto Sakai versus Tai Bam Bam Tuivasa. Sakai, the 30-year-old Brazilian, is 15-3-1 overall. He is 4-2 since joining the UFC out of Dana White's Contender Series Brazil first season. Before that, though, he had a pretty decent run in Bellator, came out with a winning record, uh, did lose to Shek Congo in one of the most miserable fights of all time. I think that fight, like, aged me by a year just watching it. Anyway, uh, he is coming off of back-to-back losses, though in his defense, they were against Alistair Overeem and Jairzinho Rosenstrike. The Rosenstrike fight, uh, the headliner of UFC Fight Night 189, took place back in June. Before that, Sakai had won his first four in the UFC over Chase Sherman, Andre Arlovsky, Martin Tybura, and Blagoy Ivanov to propel himself at least to the outskirts of the top 10. He will be meeting Tui Vasa, the 28-year-old Australian, is 20, uh, sorry, 12-3 and three overall. He is 6-3 and three in the UFC, and they are just nice little blocks. He won his first three, he lost three in a row, and has come back from that with a a new focus on training and three straight wins over, well, I mean, their UFC level heavyweight competition anyway. Uh, Stefan Struve, Harry Hunsucker, and most recently in July at UFC 264, Tai Tuivasa became, if not the hero we wanted, the hero we deserve, as he knocked out Greg Hardy and then proceeded to drink about five beers out of strangers' shoes on his way back to the locker room. Uh, You may remember the recap show from that evening. If not, go back and watch it. Uh, At any rate. I'm going to interrupt you real quick. Sure. If Tai Tuivasa wins, are you going to do a shoey with me on the recap? I am doing a shoey with you on the recap. Uh, The difference is I will be drinking it out of one of my own shoes, please, and thank you. (laughs) <laughs> I did drink it out of one of my own shoes too, but if if it happens, so it it's disgusting. So let's all root for Sakai to win. <laughs> <laughs> well, the the odds makers have bad news for you because this one is a dead pick. I'm both men out there at minus one ten uh, as perfect equals. Uh, Keith, we've got a guy who kind of skyrocketed to prominence and has taken a step back versus a guy who might well have been cut a year or two ago and is now resurgent even if it's you know over the likes of harry hunsucker and greg hardy and they kind of meet in the middle this is a pick em. who wins how 
Yeah, so you were talking about this fight, and and all I was doing was thinking about how Juliana Pena could win against Amanda Nunes. That's that's what I was doing instead, because that's out of the fights. We talked about how great this card is. This is one of the fights that, uh, you know, if if they land a big bomb and knock each other out, that'd be exciting. But uh, yeah, this is one of the fights that I I kind of forgot about on on the card. So two of us, he, he obviously is a fan favorite. He's only twenty eight years old, so. That's like being like eleven in heavyweight years, you know. He's just a just a just a little grammar school kid. Um, you can have another of, good twenty years in him. Yeah, he's kind of everything. <laughs> he's kind of everything he does. Like, you see this kind of like chunky kind of guy, and he's he's a lot different than like what his physique shows. So he's got good hand speed. He, he, he you know, he throws these winging shots. He throws hard. I actually think his power is greatly overrated. Um, those hard calf kicks, though, and like people say, well, he knocked out Greg Hardy in his last fight, but Greg Hardy also hurt him, and Greg Hardy was going in for the kill when he got knocked out. Yep. So, I mean, so I guess you could say, well, yeah, we got knocked out because of the power of him, but overall, like, he's he's not one of the big crackers in the division. No, you know? no he um, caught Greg Hardy running in chin up and just yeah. spiked him. Yeah. I know he's been focused on his wrestling, but his wrestling's been, you know, up to this point was terrible. To his credit, we haven't seen him taken down in a while. Like Stefan Struve did try to take him down, so I give him credit. Though I'm still, I've seen enough on of him on his back that I'm not confident. Like the Sergey Spivak fight is just stuck in my brain of like him getting headlocked. Like bad enough seeing a headlock, but seeing like the slow heavyweights getting headlocked, it just brings back so many bad memories of. Terrible high school wrestling days of watching up. Here comes, here comes two big fat heavyweights. No, it smack. literally looked like bad, bad, bad high school wrestling. Yeah, just yeah, just smacking titties against each other until someone hits, <laughs> until someone oh hits the God. headlock. <laughs> so uh, welcome to the last episode of the Shill and Duffy preview. <laughs> can I not say? Is that? Is that I can't say. No, that you, of course you can say. Okay. You can say titties all right, I wasn't all you sure. I, I didn't know if that was a swear. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, two of us just. You know, really struggled to get back. I don't know. I, I lost. I, I'm moving on to Sakai. I lost all track once I said that. <laughs> um, Sakai is a big heavyweight. Uh, he's he's not a great athlete. He has a lot of defensive holes. He backs straight up. He's a bit of a stationary target. He's a little lumbering. Has Every time I see the lumbering, I don't know why I say the word lumbering and automatically my brain always goes right to Tim Sylvia. Uh, it's, just, it's like the uh, – no matter what I'm saying, like – I'm at the I'm at the uh, hardware store and I say oh, I'm gonna get some lumber and I start thinking about Tim Sylvia. I just um, anyway, I was getting sidetracked again. Uh, where the hell was I? I have no idea. Uh, so so defensively he has some holes. Offensively, I actually like some of the things he does. I like what he brings offensively. He's he's got decent speed. He tends to fight in blitzes or sit back and then just come forward with a big combination. Sneaky high kick. I actually think he has uh, deceiving power. Like he's a guy that doesn't get enough credit f- for his for his punching power. Uh, I like his clinch game. He'll get in the clinch, you know, just dirty box. I actually think that's an era that'll have the most success against Tuavasa. Uh, he really worked the body with knees against Alice Overeem in their fight. He's a weak defensive wrestler though, and he struggles to get back up. He has no submission wins, and he really slowed down in past fights. I like, go back to the Overeem fight again. He like he slowed down in that fight. So prediction: This is a really tough fight to call. I'm gonna go with Sakai. 
I think he's a more technically sound fighter. I think he can land from range. And when Tuivasa crashes into the pocket to land bombs, I think Sakai can use his height advantage and, and just clinch him, lean on him a little bit, work some dirty boxing. I see Tuivasa slowing down and then Sakai just taking him, taking over, maybe even taking him down and, and maybe working him a little bit on the ground. Give me Sakai. I'll say he wins by second round TKO, uh, perhaps by ground and pound. I'm actually leaning in the same direction you are here. Like, Tai Tuivasa, it's, it's been a great story. I fully expected him to get let go on the tail end of that three-fight losing streak. I remember, uh, you know, 2018 or early 2019 being on a non-Sherdog, like, uh, recap or preview just a, as a guest. And the other panelists and I, like, just asked the serious well, question. Sorry, I got to ask. What did you say? Hey. I'm only allowed to write for sure, dog, but I, I get to talk it. anywhere I That's want. It. Apparently, That's it. I'm no, on but, it. But one of the <laughs> one cheating, of the cheating one on of us. the fellow fellow hosts was uh, uh, Blaine Henry from the Fight Library, who also does some kickboxing content for sure, dog. Yeah, but he's, he's somebody great. He's, he's great. great, but somebody asked the like the serious question, like not meant as a joke. Do you think Tai Tuivasa trains? Like that was just the whole question, like full stop. I remember you saying that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. According to Juliana Pena, that uh, Amanda Nunes hasn't been. Oh my goodness. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Even if she hasn't. Anyway, we'll get to that fight later. Uh, there's no question anymore that Tuivasa is, is training. Like, he's he, he's looked physically sharper. He's, I won't say he's added any new wrinkles, but he's gotten better at applying the things he does do. But that's amplified by the fact that he has knocked out three straight non-UFC level fighters. Like, the ghost of Stefan Struve, then Harry Hunsucker and Greg Hardy. Like, Struve's already gone. Let, let me ask you this. I decided to interrupt you again. Do you really think Greg Hardy's not UFC level? But I'm not saying like high level, but like if he was a regional fighter, would you think could you think he would make it to the UFC? I think he would make it to the UFC, but I think it might not it wouldn't have happened when it did. Like the, oh, the whole thing is thrown out of whack oh, by of him being Greg Hardy. Yeah, yeah. And I'm talking about if he wasn't an NFL player, he just big, massive, strong, explosive guy like that. I think he would make it to the UFC. Yeah, I, I think he would have made it to the UFC at, at some point. But, you know, my, my point is more that he's probably on his way yeah, out. Yeah, absolutely. Like, he's dude, he's dude. a low-level UFC talent at best. And, and he's going to get choked out by 300-year-old Alexi Olenek uh, in in a couple weeks. And <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> a terrible matchup. Uh, <clears throat> anyway, I'm looking at the strength of schedule here when I, I think about this fight because Sakai is a high-level heavyweight who just kind of came up against the wall. I love that you pointed out like how good his clinch is because he kind of lives or dies by it. Like he like he lost a, like if your if your best weapon is the clinch against Alistair Overeem, that, that's gonna be rough sledding to survive five rounds. Uh it's why his fight with uh Shek Congo was so terrible. Because Shek Congo's like, oh you you just want to mash each other into the fence and throw knees? Like we can do that for an entire night. Uh the loss of Jairzinho Rosenstrike, he's going to knock a lot of people out in the first round for as long as he's around. Like, those things haven't... I, I've not jumped off how whatever kind of bus I was on for, for Augusto Sakai. He, he is the guy he was, just that that's his ceiling. That's higher than Taito Ivasa. Uh, I agree with you, even in the specifics of how this probably plays out. Uh, Tuivasa will... I, I think he'll have some success uh, hitting Sakai with his underrated leg kicks. I think he'll have some success, at least early on, backing Sakai up with his overhands because everybody overrates his one-shot power, including his opponents. 
like when when he comes swinging, like they tend to to react. But Sakai will figure it out, and I think he's going to pretty well outclass Tuivasa on the feet from there on out. Uh, give me Augusta Sakai by a pretty one-sided decision. And we won't have to drink any beer out of shoes. Second from the top of the UFC 269 prelims is a bantamweight matchup between Pedro Munoz and Dominic Cruz. Munoz, the 35-year-old Brazilian, is 19-6 with one no contest overall. He is 9-6 with one no contest in the UFC. He lost his most recent outing uh, at UFC 265, a unanimous decision to the resurgent Jose Aldo. Uh, he has, in fact, lost three of his last four. But as Munoz would point out to you, as when he steps into the cage against Cruz this weekend, it will be his fifth fight with a former champion in his last six. He has fought Cody Garbrandt, Aljamain Sterling, Frankie Edgar, Jimmy Rivera, Jose Aldo, and now Cruz. It is an absolute murderer's row. Uh, he, obviously, taking on Cruz. The 36-year-old uh, Arizona now fighting out of San Diego is 23-3 and overall. He is 6-2 and in the UFC, but if you add in his WEC run with that, which you absolutely should, ha should because his division was absorbed wholesale, he is 13-3 and between the two promotions. He is, of course, the uh, former uh, WEC Bantamweight champion, the former UFC Bantamweight champion, and still very much in the discussion, uh, if not leading the discussion, for the greatest ever to do it in that division. Odds on this one, very close, but Munoz, just the slightest of favorites. He's minus 115, Cruz minus 105, so you can't quite get him at even money yet. Uh, man, I actually like this fight, even though it's a guy in Pedro Munoz who, man, can this guy not get a break? Uh, I like this fight a lot. Um, Dominic Cruz, the, the question is for me, Obviously, he's 36 years old now, and he is the most extravagantly injured top-level fighter in the history of the sport. He is the ultimate what-might-have-been story as far as injuries go, even over Cain Velasquez, because <clears throat> even healthy prime Cain lost a couple of fights, whereas Dominic Cruz, nobody beat this guy for almost a decade, and most of the people who tried couldn't even lay a finger on him. Like, I've... Obviously, in the wake of Jose Aldo's incredible performance uh, last week, and as he gets close to a Bantamweight title shot, and hell, on the recap, I pointed out it would be great if these guys actually ended up fighting next year, giving us a dream matchup we never thought we'd get. And I've seen plenty of people speculating on how they would have done back in the WEC days if, uh, you know, if Aldo had kind of we, made his transformation earlier and dropped. Yeah, we asked it on the recap, remember? Yeah, and... I'm not ready to just hand that trophy to Jose Aldo. Like, if people weren't there or they are choosing not to remember, forget Leota Machida. Like, Dominic Cruz was the hardest guy to hit cleanly in the sport for years and years and years. And his record, it's 23-3. and three. If he'd been healthy that whole time, it might be 33-3 and three right now. Uh, he really is a what-might-have-been story. But at this point, he's 36. He's had multiple surgeries on both knees, you know, allografts, cadaver tendons, and he's already at an age where even if his knees had been perfectly healthy, he would presumably have lost a step. And he has a movement-heavy style, to say the least, that is dependent on rhythm and speed. I'm sure 
he he is a couple notches away from his prime self. Like he beat Casey Kenny, you know, back in March, and it was a great fight. But he he won. He surprised Kenny by turning to his wrestling. Dominic Cruz always was a wrestler when he wanted to be. Uh, part of his kind of movement, like that dance he does, is him being able to hit a knee tap and kind of disguise it behind his his movement. That's what he did. Uh, he out-wrestled Casey Kenny. He still had the same movement, but it just was a tick slower than we're used to. But I think, actually, Pedro Munoz may be the highest ranked or the highest level guy that it might still work on. Because Munoz, when I see him, I see a like a come-forward pressure guy, but he tends to come forward in straight lines. He's not sensational at, at cutting things off, uh, although really took advantage of that. I think Dominic Cruz can pull off the pull the rabbit out of the hat and do the elusive thing on Pedro Munoz. I will change my mind really quick if Munoz starts kicking the crap out of his legs in the first 90 seconds of the fight. I'll feel really dumb because if he embraces that early and often, that really favors him. But I, I don't know if he will. I, I, I'm not going to call it a vintage performance, but I think Dominic Cruz is going to get a win here. I think he's going to get it by decision, and it's going to keep him incredibly enough, like still relevant in this division and still like right on the cusp of the title picture. Give me Dominic Cruz by decision. Yeah, wow. So, man, this is what a great fight. And, it, and it's a hard one. This is one of the fights that I've, I've flip-flopped back and forth. Dominic Cruz, yeah, it's I'm, re- I'm ready to write this guy off. You said he wasn't beaten in like 10 years. Um, and Fannis. He did not fight for like eight of those years. <laughs> I, remember when, I remember when Frank Shamrock got disqualified against Henzo Gracie, and he was like, well, it's okay. I finally lost my first loss. In, I don't know what he said. It was like 12 years. I'm like, yeah, but you haven't fought in 11 of them. <laughs> um, but uh, so Donnie Cruz, he, such a unique style to his game, and, and the fact that it's still working against a guy like Casey Kenny is, is is pretty remarkable. It, it really is. And if we if we're talking about the recap with him getting a win over Pedro Munoz, it, it goes right out there with last week's Jose Aldo. Like how incredible it is. He's elusive. Obviously, lots of feints in his game. The legendary footwork. His nonstop movement. He cuts angles unlike anybody we've we've ever seen. Really. Uh, he lands at weird angles. His his punches come at you. Like it, he doesn't have big knockout power. It's he has this hit you from like hit you in the back of the head while you while he's looking <laughs> at you because you never know where the punch is coming from. He's like a he's like a racquetball. A, a Brian a Brian Regan joke where he says <laughs> racket, Brian Regan had a joke who says racquetball is the only game where you could be looking at the ball and it hits you in the back of the head at the same time. Like that's Dominic Cruz. Uh, he plays a matador. He can, he can strike when backing up when someone's crashing him, which is probably his most incredible feat is so many, you know, so many fighters can't do that. He does it so well. Um, and he can win by just making guys miss. He really tries to get people to, and I've, oh, I've said this before, there's two sides to his game. He's so good at making people miss so bad that it like really tricks the judges into thinking he's doing more, that he's landing more offensively than he really is. But the other thing is people miss power shots. They, they swing so hard that it really ties them out. And, and it's something he actually really did well against Casey Kenny. You know, you talk about the wrestling, but also he was making Casey Kenny miss that tires people out. We've seen him do that over and over again. 
and then obviously he added the the takedowns. Now his hands are so low. Obviously, he keeps his hand low because he relies, one, throwing him from weird angles, but also he relies so much on head movement. Um, that is worrisome, being that he's such an, you know, he's an older fighter in a weight class where, you know, guys, you know, miss, well, guys, um, you know. It's it's no country for old men. Yeah, well, I was trying to say, like, it, it's not even just that it's, yeah, it's not just the A, but, like, it's it's the speed weight class. Mm-hmm. And like your speed falls. It's like, well, that's when we see guys get knocked out up in age. It's because they're, they dropped in speed. Not necessarily the chin is gone. It's just that, that punch they used to, that used to miss him before now lands. Um, he's a good wrestler, uh, very good reactionary double legendary knee tap. We always added that knee tap on the end of his single leg. I've, I've say this and I'll go to my grave saying this, his takedown defense is like grossly overrated. Uh, TJ Dillashaw took him down. Cody Garbrandt took him down. Obviously, I said obviously Cejudo could take him down. Uriah Fa- Faber, one of the fights, picked him up and slammed him. So I, I just want to point that out. Now Munoz, I think he beat Edgar. I think we all agree that he beat Edgar. Uh, not not the rivalry. I mean, not I keep saying right, not robbery of the year, but uh, you know, a fight that would have looked much better on his resume if he got a win. He's not a great athlete, but he just makes up for it by just being insanely tough. Pressure, marching forward, popping a busy jab, fighting at a tremendous pace, which is really surprising because like that's what we've always kind of categorized his game, and that was not him in his last fight. He was not pressing the action, and I think it was what you were talking about. Like one Aldo was throwing straight shots like he does, but also I think like. He really respected Aldo's power too much, and and I, we can see now why. Like in the Rob Font fight, like he's got changing power in, in the weight class now. Munoz marches forward because he wants to get in the pocket. He wants to brawl. He's 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 so hittable because he's not very technically sound. He'll he'll tend to square up. He'll lose a lot of his technique, but he's like such a great chin that he's willing to test it and he's willing to like I will eat one to land one, and it usually works for him. And he really showed, like, go back to, like, the Aljamain Sterling fight. Like, Aljamain Sterling was teeing off against him. I said this last time. And he still kept himself, while he was, you know, greatly outmatched and put himself in position to win the fight, but being so tough. Uh, You talked about his kicks, hard kicks to the body, calf kicks too. He doesn't check leg kicks, which is is an issue. Aljamain Sterling also had a lot of success. With the, with the calf kicks, it's probably probably Aljamain Sterling. One of his most impressive victories was was the Pedro Munoz fight. Uh, but he has good power. He doesn't initiate enough grappling though, which is I think is a flaw because Pedro Munoz is a good grappler. He's he's good at winning scrambles, and he's good at like catching opportunities, looking for like that legendary guillotine. Um, I think he caught Rob Font with it with the guillotine. So as far as prediction goes, this is a really hard pick. I'm, I think I'm like I'm stalling because I'm not <laughs> not too confident in my pick. <laughs> I have counted Dominic Cruz out so many times. I was there in Boston when he beat T.J. Dillashaw, even though I thought Dillashaw won the fight. But when he beat T.J. Dillashaw, I gave him no chance to come back after that long against a great fighter like Dillashaw. I I didn't ex- I I picked Casey Kenny to beat him last fight. I'm not betting against him again. I, I think a breakdown of Munoz kind of moving straight at him. He's going to work for Cruz. And I actually think uh, he's going to make Munoz chase him. And I think he's going to land a couple of takedowns too. I think we might see a lot of wrestle heavy from Cruz. 
I think it's going to be a very, very close fight. But I think uh, I think the former champion is going to win a split decision. And then Pedro Munoz's next fight will be against, like, Pichon or TJ Dillashaw or some other former champ. Like, if they're going to give uh, Munoz win or lose, like, I do agree with you. He needs a break. Like, like, like go bring back Hennon Burrell. Let him fight Hennon Burrell. Hey, Hannon Burrell was supposed to fight a couple weeks ago. Uh, and, yeah, like, yeah. I ended up getting pulled off the card at the last minute. Like, I just, it's I not... If they're gonna give him former bandweight champions, let's get him around. <laughs> yeah. See, we can like pull Joe Soto over the original Bellator. Like there you go, Joe Soto. That's a name I've not heard in a long time. The top prelim on uh, the UFC 269 undercard, underscoring the fact that this card could have just been a fight night all its own, just even without the incredible main card. This sounds like it already should have been a fight night uh, main event. It is Josh Emmett versus Dan Ige uh, at featherweight. Emmett, the 36-year-old Californian, is 16-2 overall. He is 7-2 in the UFC. He is on a three-fight win streak. Uh, those three coming over Michael Johnson, Mursad Bektich, and most recently Shane Burgos, over whom he took a unanimous decision at UFC on ESPN, Blades versus Volkov. Uh Maybe a little bit of out of sight, out of mind in the case of Emmett, because he has had an 18-month layoff since that win over Burgos. But he is back um, after a couple of false starts. You know, he was supposed to come back uh, much earlier this year and was uh, sidelined by a variety of different things. He'll be taking on Ige, who has fought three times since the last time Emmett fought, just to give you an indication of how long it's been. Uh, the 30-year-old Hawaiian by way of Las Vegas is... 15 and four overall. He's seven and three since joining the UFC out of the very first season of Dana White's contender series. He is coming off a loss. He dropped a unanimous decision to Chan Sung Jung, the Korean zombie, in the headliner of UFC on ESPN 25 back in June. Prior to that, he uh, knocked out Gavin Tucker in 22 seconds at UFC Fight Night Edwards versus Muhammad back in March. Uh, before that, a loss to Calvin Cater in what was sort of Ige's first showcase top 10 uh, fight. He was turned away by the superior boxing uh, of Cater, but uh, nonetheless finds himself here in this high stakes fight. Emmett is a slight favorite to win this. He is minus 160, uh, Ige plus 140 on the comeback. Keith, how awesome is this fight and who do you think wins? Yeah, it, I mean, it's awesome. The matchmakers did not give either guy, like, much mercy. I mean, you figure Ige needs a bounce-back fight, you know, coming off a main event loss, and then Emmett, on the other hand, is coming off major surgeries and been out for a while, and then he gets Dan Ige. I mean, it's an incredible fight. It's it's going to be an action-packed fight. If, if and I want to throw this out, if Josh Emmett is the same fighter, that we last saw because that's a huge if coming back from an injury as we just, we just talked about Dominic Cruz being a, you know, lower weight class guy up there in age. Josh Emmett is Josh Emmett's. Oh, I had a lot of questions on Josh Emmett. 36. Yeah. He's 36 years old at a young man's weight class. He's coming off a destroyed knee, but he's a wrestle boxer underrated hand speed. Everyone always talks about his power, but he's got a lot of, he's got fast hands. He's got power in both hands. As I wrote my notes, and I always, I always kind of write notes, and then I kind of organize them back. I, I wrote power three different times, like when I was watching him. Uh, he, his power comes when they're short. When they're short shots, 
that's when they're dangerous because you don't see him coming with his power. He throws a lot of combos. I like that he sets up his big bombs by going to the body first, trying to lower the, his opponent's hands. He can make the mistake of over, overextending. Um, his lead leg is a big target for two reasons. One, he's because guys who load up and throw big bombs always obviously lean on the front. You know, if you want to throw a left hook, you get on the front leg and turn your hips and everything. But also, it's also a huge target now because he just tore his, I threw it towards ACL, PCI, tore everything. I think mm-hmm. he, he's had a bunch of surgeries and, and whatnot. So those are two things. What I love about his game, my favorite thing about Josh Emmett is besides his power, besides all that, is when you and I, this is very evident in his last fight against Shane Burgess, which was one incredible performance by him to beat a guy like Shane Burgos, but to beat a guy like Shane Burgos after he completely destroyed his entire knee. Like immediately, yeah, like right away. And it wasn't one of these ones where guy like it seems like every injury in MMA is always in the first round, and you're like, and you find out the guy broke his hand at the very end. No, you see him literally reached like he knew it. He reaches down to his leg and then realizes he's in a fight, and he. Um, but what I love about it when Shane Burgos is trying to press the action like Shane Burgos does, and I think the difference in the fight between and why Josh Emmett won is every exchange they threw. Josh Emmett always made sure that he was throwing the last punch in the exchange. So he was catching Shane Burgos a lot on the uh, disengaging. As Shane Burgos was disengaging, Josh Emmett was still throwing more. So like, like, okay, we're all done with the exchange. Let me step back or something. And Josh Emmett wasn't done. He's always landing one more shot. And that was really impressive. It was, he did it over and over. Even if it, even when it was blocked, just reminding you know, the last thing the, the judges see of that exchange is Emmett – you know, maybe hitting his forearms, hitting something, which, which, which is just one. It's, 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 well, it's so smart. It's, it's just a smart strategy. Um, he's, he's a good wrestler. He can, he can mix and takedowns with his striking. He's a former NCAA wrestler. He just simply doesn't wrestle enough. And a lot of that comes when, as you get up there at age 36, it's, it's just wrestling's a young man's sport. It really is. That's what every wrestler in the sport MMA, as they get further in up in the age, you see him wrestle less and less. It's just hard grinding sport. It's just it's different. Uh, but also, like when wrestlers start knocking guys out, it's like the new toy. I've been wrestling since I was six. Oh, I only started knocking guys out when I was thirty. Oh, what do I play with? Like you, you put away the Nintendo and, and you start playing with the, I don't know what's the X, I don't know Sega Genesis two thousand. I don't know what's the new. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not a video game. I should even. Say that. PlayStation 5 and Xbox 360. Are, are. Yeah, yeah. You put away the <laughs> Sorry, guys. Uh, I, and I just bought my... Don't don't tell him. I just bought my son a Nintendo Game Boy, whatever thing it Switch? is. Yeah, yeah. I did, I went to the GameStop. I didn't know. They had to explain it to me. The guy gave me the thing. And I'm like, what? That's it? All right. Back to, back to the fight. Well, no, here. I'll, um, I'll give you one, one little right. thing. Because I, I had lunch with my oldest son who was in from out of town. The light at the end okay. of the tunnel is one day they'll be 22 years old and they buy their own toys. They don't have to worry about it anymore. <laughs> there you go. My son's six. So yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he, he thinks Santa's giving it to him. In the, well, he doesn't know he's getting it, but Santa Santa's going to get the credit. There's only, only one fat guy that should be getting the credit for that. But back to this fight. <laughs> Uh, and it's not Scott Cooker. Uh, back to his fight. Uh, he, so he 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 doesn't wrestle enough. He he's he's got very solid top control, 
and he lands hard ground and pound when he's on top. And I also like that he has cardio to throw bombs all 15 minutes. Now, everything I just said about Josh Emmett is assuming, is a big assumption that he's still the same fighter that we last saw him fight. Uh, Ige, very aggressive, insane output, can take a ton of damage and just keep marching forward. It reminds me a lot of Shane Burgers. Not, not the physique and not the style, but just the, I'm going to march forward, I'm going to eat shots and keep coming. Compact striker, throws heat, just kind of whips punches, constantly throwing combos. Uh, I like his, he has this one combo that he throws a lot. That he's just, he slips counter right hand with the left hooked afterwards. I love that punch that he does, like a feedback right into a left hook. Good power. The big concern about him in the striking is the amount of damage he's taken the last, I think it's the last three fights. Edson Barbosa, Calvin Cater, and, and the Korean zombie. I think there might be a fight in there. But th- like three Gavin fights. Tucker, but he didn't even okay. break a sweat. Yeah, I, was three, I should say three fights recently. Yeah. It was Edson Barbosa, Calvin Cater, and and the Korean zombie. That's, he took damage a lot in all three of those yeah. fights. Uh, hard leg kicks, he throws them. Uh, he loves throwing flying knees. He does it just to close the distance. Good timing on his entries. He's a good grappler. He's good at winning scrambles. Good top control. Good ground and pound. He is a presidential black belt. And I, what I love about him is you can tell he's a, he has a guy that always has a strong game plan. And he puts himself, even if he's outmatched, like Calvin Cater, he was outmatched, but he made it a you know, somewhat competitive fight by having the right game plan and implementing, which he'll probably do against Josh Hammond. He'll probably look to like the Michael Johnson fight or something like that. So as far as prediction goes, man, this is another hard fight to pick simply because the damage you guys take has been disturbing, but Emmett has those injuries. He's been out. Who knows? But I'm going to take Emmett. I think he's going to crack Ige with some huge shots like he did against Burgos. I think that's moving forward style is not going to work well against someone with the power of Emmett. I don't think he'll finish Ige because of how insanely tough Ige is. Though if anybody can put Ige at one shot, it's probably Josh Emmett. But I think it's going to look a lot like the Burgos fight. I think we'll have really close back and forth. To me, this has fight of the night written all over it. But give me Josh Emmett by decision. Yeah, I I hate to say this because I I super like Dan Ige. Like he's one of the people I've talked to the most in the sport. Like just interviewed him several times, uh, and he I don't know if he still does, but his quote unquote day job used to be he was uh, Ali Abdelaziz's fixer. So he's the guy that would help get you in touch with other. Ali fighters that you were scheduled to interview or whatever. So I've just dealt with him a lot. Super good guy, super uh, intelligent uh, guy. You, you made a point about his game planning. And the funny thing is, at first glance, he presents almost as like an old school Hawaiian brawler. But he, I, his game has many more layers than that. But, and again, I hate to say this, but against the the three like top 10 guys he's fought, Edson Barboza, where, you know, both you and I probably thought, I thought Barboza won that fight. Uh, Cater and Korean Zombie. All three times, like, Ige's striking game on the feet, it just doesn't work over the course of a fight against a more disciplined, properly schooled striker. And, you know, Korean Zombie nickname and reputation aside, he's he's a very nifty striker. Uh, but, you know, Barboza... Uh, Jung and especially Cater figured Ige out and it just got worse as the fight went along. Like, you know, Cater figured him out. Uh, Josh Emmett can absolutely do that. And 
on top of that, when he figures him out, he can punish him for like his kind of like bounce in and throw with more power than any of those other guys can. So yeah, I think this is a, unless Emmett is seriously faded, this is a bad matchup uh, for Ige. If Emmett comes out and he's visibly slowed, you know, all bets are off at that point. Not literally, so consider that before betting on this fight. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Like, this is a bad style matchup for Ige. It should be a spectacular fight. But uh, give me Emmett by, you know, a decision. One where he's kind of, again, rolling downhill and, and he's catching Ige more and more as the thing goes along. The five-fight main card of UFC 269 begins with a bantamweight matchup between Howley and Paiva and Sean O'Malley. Paiva, the 26-year-old Brazilian, is 21-3 and overall. He is 3-2 and in the UFC since joining out of the first season of Dana White's Contender Series Brazil. Uh, he is on a three-fight win streak. He lost his first two uh, right out of the Contender Series, though Kai Kara France and Rogerio Bontarin, you know, uh, pretty pretty tough uh, matching out of the gate. Since then, he's come back with three straight over Mark De La Rosa, Jalga Shmagulov in what ended up being a catchweight fight uh, because Paiva missed weight badly. And then most recently at UFC on ESPN, Sandhagen versus Dillashaw back in July, he took a majority decision over Kyler Phillips in a Bantamweight fight. He is staying at Bantamweight and he is facing O'Malley. The 27-year-old... Uh, Montana-born fighter, is 14-1 and overall. He is 6-1 and since joining out of the first season of Dana White's Contender Series, the original series. He fought most recently in July at UFC 264, getting a third-round TKO over Chris Moutinho in a fight that really could have been stopped anytime after about the middle of the first round. Uh, before that, he defeated Thomas Almeida back in March. Again, third-round KO, uh, in a fight that he had been dominating from pillar to post. Anyway, those two back-to-back -back wins have allowed him to bounce back from his first career loss, a controversial, maybe non-existent, if you ask him, TKO loss to Marlon Vera, where uh, he turned his ankle after a Vera kick. Vera pounced and pounded him out on the ground. Odds on this one strongly favor O'Malley. He is... Minus 280 or so right now. Paiva plus 240. Uh, I'll talk about this for a sec. Um, I, you know, I always leave the the nuance, the nitty gritty, uh, you know, X's and O's details to you. But in terms of big story here, the UFC clearly knows exactly what it has in O'Malley. They have a fighter who, between his kind of brash personality his distinctive look, you know, the rainbow hair, the tattoos, his willingness to market himself. You know, he's he's out there on Twitch. He he has a podcast where he has Casey Kenny on and they have inappropriate would you conversations about their coworkers. Uh, and then, of course, his actual skill and his highlight reel. They have, I think, the only person on UFC roster right now who even stands a chance of being that mythical next Conor McGregor. He's the only one with that kind of superstar upside. Uh and because of that, the UFC is handling him with a level of matchmaking that is normally reserved for Bellator and Michael Venom Page. Uh, before the Vera fight, they matched him sensibly and just on the verge of conservatively. You know, Eddie Wineland was his first kind of like real tough test. 
And when he blew through Wineland, they put him in a matchup with Vera. That I mean, that that's a contender match right there. The winner of that fight, you know, back last summer, you know, creeps into the top ten of the bantamweight division. It didn't go well, and the UFC has scaled it way back since then. Coming back from the Vera fight, they gave him Thomas Almeida, who was on a three-fight losing streak at the time, and was even though he was only 29, just like visibly a shot fighter. After that, they gave him Chris Moutinho. And obviously, Moutinho was a late notice step in. But it was it was a weird look because O'Malley's out there yelling, nobody wants to fight me, everyone's scared. Half the bantamweights on the roster are jumping up and down in their seats and, like, waving their hands like, you know, a fifth grader with the answer to the question. And the UFC is over here signing a guy who wasn't even the best bantamweight in CES. Uh, you know... I understand why the UFC is doing it, because if they're looking for the next huge star, it's much easier to do that when the person keeps on winning. But it applies a whole different kind of pressure, honestly. Uh, there's one kind of pressure to, hey, I'm fighting Marlon Vera now. I'm in the big leagues. And there's another kind of pressure that, hey, this guy's, I'm a 15 to 1 favorite over this guy. There's a, there's a baked in expectation of dominance. Just getting your hand raised isn't enough. But he's delivered. We talked about this uh, off camera before we started recording. We're going to be doing the Sherdog year-end awards here soon. As of right now, O'Malley over Moutinho is probably my beatdown of the year. And uh, O'Malley over Almeida is probably in my top three. I mean, he has absolutely slaughtered the two guys he's fought since Vera. But they were also kind of tailor-made for him. Howley and Paiva, on paper, looks like a step up. I mean, he's on a, th a three-fight win streak. But I think he's kind of a setup for uh, O'Malley as well. He's he's on a three-fight win streak, but two of those wins were over flyweights. And one of them, he wasn't a flyweight. He blew weight bad. Like, in the cage, Piva's going to be the smaller guy. And he's not especially going to be faster, at least in terms of, like, functional hand and, and foot speed to make up for that. And he doesn't really have... He's not really a finisher on the feet or on the ground. I this is this is target practice for O'Malley to, to me. Like this was a, a smart piece of matchmaking, giving him a guy that is on a hot streak, but I think is tailor made for uh, Sean O'Malley to put on his highlight reel. Uh, you know, O'Malley he has a, a, a certain like I don't want to sound like just a gushing fan, even though we both are kind of gushing fans, but he he has a certain magic on the feet. He gets into a flow state that really you only see from like Israel Adesanya, Anderson Silva, you know, Conor McGregor five years ago, where they're just, you know, they're moving on a different level than their opponent. They're, they're anticipating their opponent's movements and just kind of almost toying with them and just pulling them into, into their kill shots. Uh, it's what O'Malley did to Wineland for sure. Um, I think he gets back on it. Like, this isn't going to be just like an attrition beatdown where he lands a million strikes on a guy and finally there's just either one big shot at the end or a mercy stoppage by the ref. I think O'Malley is going to put Helly and Piva on his uh, highlight reel sometime in the first two rounds. Uh, make it round two for me, uh, KO. Yeah, so uh, I feel like Piva is some... He's not... Chris Martino, but I don't, he's not Marlon Vera, but I don't think he's that far behind Marlon Vera. Like, I think he is a tough test. 
but I, I think you made some good points, especially the the size difference being a big thing. Is Sean O'Malley's like big for the weight class? I'm like, no, tall and lengthy, not like physique wise, but like you know, muscle wise. But he, he's he's tall and lengthy. People hate O'Malley. He gives them reasons to you know all the reasons in the world to hate him. I get it. His skills is really impressive. He's one of the best strikers in the UFC right now already. He's long and lengthy. He's got crazy athleticism, great elusiveness. He can fight effectively from both stances. He's really good at picking up his opponent's timing. He's very, very accurate. He's smart. He's a smart striker. He's good at using feints to set up openings. Tons of variety in his game. Quick jab. His slip and rip right hand is is a thing of beautiful. Uh, he, he needs to slip because he keeps his hands so low and he relies on his slipping ability. But he has some, and when he connects, he has serious power. And he has shown some flashy, fun stuff, spinning attacks. He can land um, these elite things that you know very few fighters can. De- defensively, he keeps his he keeps his uh, chin a little high. He stands up a little high for my liking. Uh, and obviously, a big, huge defensive floor is that he doesn't check leg kicks, as we saw in the Marlon Vera fight. Uh, but he's also he's okay on the ground. He's he's. You don't see much offensively from him grappling, uh, and he has been taken down in the UFC. But you know he's been doing jujitsu tournaments. I have seen him some on the regional scene get some takedowns. Uh, cardio used to be an issue, but you go back to his last fight against Chris Martino. He didn't slow down the whole fight. He was landing power shots. Martino was pressing the action. Sure, it's. I understand it's not as tiring when it's always. You know, one-way traffic. It could have been a little different if it was if Martino's more competitive. Now move over to Highland Paiva. He's also a long, lengthy fighter. That's one of his strengths at flyweight. I don't think it's going to be as big of an advantage at bantamweight. Uh, I mean, we already seen him fight at bantamweight, but the second fight in bantamweight. Uh, he's stalking, good output. Uh, he does drop his hands though, for my liking. He does well. He's also like a slipper rip guy. He does well to bounce his head off the center line. He's got a solid jab. He's got a powerful right hand. Very um, just basic boxing, but that's usually what wins fights. Uh, good good body kicks. He, he can get in the clinch and, and battle the clinch. He can mix in some takedowns, uh, though his takedown defense needs to be improved. In his last fight, Kyla Phillips took him down four times in that fight. So as far as prediction, you're really confident in O'Malley in this fight. I think it's a little bit more of a test than you're, you're crediting to, but I think he fly, you know, he passes it with flying colors. I like O'Malley's footwork. I like his speed to pick apart Piva from range. I already have, you know, a size advantage on him, and I'm with you. I think he knocks him out. I see he knocks him out in the second round. There you go. Two picks for a knockout by Sean O'Malley and for the uh, the trade to keep rolling. Next up on the main card of UFC 269 is a flyweight matchup between Kai Kara France and Cody Garbrandt, who will be making his divisional debut. Kara France, the 28-year-old New Zealander, is 22-9 with one no contest. Overall, he's 5-2 in the UFC. Uh, fought most recently back in March at UFC 259, where he knocked out uh, Hogerio Bontarin in the closing seconds of the first round. That allowed him to come back from a loss to Brandon Royval. Uh, by guillotine choke back last September. He'll be taking on Garbrandt, who uh, 
has done a whole lot for a guy who just barely turned 30. Uh, you know, he's among the fighters to win a UFC title earliest in their career in terms of number of fights in the modern era. I think he won his UFC title in like the, his 10th fight or something like that. Uh, at any rate, 30-year-old Ohioan uh, is 12-4 and four overall. He's 7-4 and four in the UFC. Uh, he fought most recently back in May, dropping a unanimous decision to Rob Font in the headliner of UFC Fight Night 188. Uh, prior to that, he fought last June, knocking out Rafael Asuncao with a knockout-of-the-year candidate, just a sensational punch that dropped Asuncao dead in his tracks. Uh, which allowed him to bounce back from his three-fight skid against uh, TJ Dillashaw twice and Pedro Munoz. Odds slightly favor Garbrandt to get this done in his flyweight debut. He is minus 135. You can get Car France at plus 115 as the slight underdog. Keith, uh, what do you think of the Cody Garbrandt at flyweight experiment in general, and how do you think it goes for him on Saturday? Yeah, so... It it's one of those ones I don't hate him moving down to flyweight simply because his options at 135 is kind of gone, and I don't think he can move up. Like, I don't think he'd been as effectively moved up. So do I think it's going to be successful? Or do I think he's going to win the title? No, I don't. But obviously he has a you know, much smaller path to a title shot at flyweight. He comes in as one of the – probably the biggest name in the division or one of them already, and – and again, like I'm, you know, losing, you know, you lost several times at bantamweight recently, so it is what it is. So Garbrandt has so many questions. Obviously, he's moving down a weight class is the big one. He's also had so many terrible injuries. And we go back to since when he won the title, I mean, he had back surgeries and I think he had pneumonia and I don't know. Do you have COVID in there? Like, there's it seems like everything is hit. You know, this board. There, there's, there's no way Garbrandt didn't get COVID. <laughs> Yeah, he probably had an STD. I, I mean, who knows what he had? Like, okay, <laughs> like just the, the poor guy. It just he, he's been have a, a string of bad luck. Um, like he, I think he admitted to doing steroids once, and it, it slipped on an interview saying uh, Tita Dillashaw was te- teaching him how to do it, and then he was like, "Oh wait, I shouldn't say that." Um, but you know. Like I went back, I watched some of his most recent fights, you know, particularly the last fight with Rob Font. There's still some things you like about him. Like he's got good footwork, he's got a, a quick jab when he uses it. I apologize. Let me jump in real quick. I should have remembered this. Not only did he did he get COVID last summer, but it especially like wiped him out. Like I he had so. a, a yeah. really severe case where, yeah, so. like, yeah, so, he sorry, got, like, pneumonia just, from it or something like that. Yeah, got 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 pneumonia. Like, yeah, just right. was out of it for months. So yeah. Okay. Yeah, so just one thing after another with this guy. His his car probably got towed, double parked. I mean, like just this is just bad luck, you know. Um, but like he's still got some skills there. He's got good footwork, a good jab. He he uses feints well. When he's not brawling, he has tight boxing. I think short, tight. That's where he does his best work. That's that's what he was landing on. You know, we always think about the Dominic Cruz fight. That was one of the best performances by a fighter ever in the mm-hmm. Dominic Cruz fight. And everything was short, tight. He does have power, but obviously it's a big question mark if that power will go down with him to 125 when he decreases the the amount of water in his body. 
good leg kicks, but he doesn't throw leg kicks enough. And one of the biggest question marks about him is is his chin. He's knocked out twice by TJ Dillashaw, knocked out by Pedro Munoz. Rob Font was battering him. And then is it going to get better when you have less water in your brain? When you suck, you know, suck him. I'm assuming he, he's going to have a tough weight cut, get down to 125. He's put up pictures, and it looks like when Dillashaw cut to flyweight, yeah. like he looks like jerky. Yeah, it's terrible. So, in in fights when he you know looked terrible, the the Dillashaw fight, the Munoz fight, he was he was dragged into a brawl, and and he made mistakes in those brawls. He load up on things. He he kept getting blasted with the left hook. The left hook was putting him out. Um, he also makes a mistake to brawl when he gets hurt. Like he, I've talked about Rob Rob Whitaker doing this, which I say like most top level fighters don't do it. But Rob Whitaker is one of them that he, they're always trying to like make it even. Like, oh, you punch me, let me. I have to punch you back now. And Cody Garbrandt has that in him, where he gets caught, and then instead of like recovering or wrestling or something like that, he suddenly just okay, I'm going to bite down on my mouthpiece and let's throw down. I got to get that one back. And and that has not worked out for him, especially the, the Pedro Munoz one is a, the perfect example of it not working out for him. It's, you know, trying to even the score. Uh, to his credit, though, he didn't do that in his last fight against Rob Font. Rob Font tagged him a bunch of times and he didn't, he never invited a brawl. And, but I think he went to a little bit to the other extreme. He almost became gun shy. And when he did open up his hands, he had some success when he opened them up. Uh, he's a good wrestler. He has a really good reactionary double. I think about the, going back to the Dominic Cruz fight. He had this incredible reshot on Dominic Cruz that he took Cruz down, with, which, which was so beautiful. Uh, he has strong takedown defense if you try to take him down. If, if you do take him down, he's very good at just popping right back to his feet. Uh, he has gone 25 minutes. You like that, even though there's only 15 minutes, five, but you like that he's gone 25 minutes. But obviously, cardio, which was one time a strength, you got to worry, how, you know, how much of a strength that is moving on to 125. Now, move over to Kai Car France. He's well-rounded. He's a good striker. Uh, one thing he doesn't like, though, is he doesn't like getting pressured. Brandon Moreno, you know, the current champion, had success by forcing Car France back on his back foot. But when things are going well, he's he, he throws a nice jab. He throws a lot of basic combos, straight punches down the pipe. His straight right is probably his best punch. Good head movement. Slip and rip game is his best thing. Uh, it's actually that's something he did against. I, I rewatched the Brandon Marino fight. That's why it stands out to me a little bit. Slipping, uh, slipping right hand was you know slipping and then ripping the right hand was one of the punches that he landed a lot on Brandon Moreno. Uh, does really good to bounce his head off the center line and keep himself. He he bounces off but keeps himself in range. Something that uh, we talked about. Petrion does. He keeps himself in range. Adrian Giannis is really good at it. Is what you're supposed to do. Uh, high guard defense, a lot of uh, you know when he's when he's not slipping, he's he's uh, fighting about high guard descents. Uh, he does this. He also does that. Robert Whitaker dipping to one side, throwing a high kick to the other side, which I absolutely love. He's he's got good calf kicks, good in scrambles, solid takedown defense. Uh, he looks he looks for like switches and splatos. I put this out last time when you try to take him down. I like that his hips are always moving. Now, I'm not a, I'm not a big in the wrestling, I, I believe more in the stand up and scrambling that way. But I like that he always keeps his hips moving, though negatively, he was recently submitted by Brandon Roy Bell. So, as far as the prediction goes, so when it comes, to, I flip flopped on this fight a couple times. And when you look at skills, Cody Garbrandt is still the better fighter, he's he's beaten better competition. But there's so many questions around him between 
illnesses and injuries and his chin and dropping weight and motivation and all kinds of stuff and inactivity. I usually pick the better fighter despite questions, but this case is just, there's just too many questions for me. So I'm, I'm going to go, I'm going to go with Cara France. I'm going to say he wins by decision. Oh man. I thought I was going to be the only one to like kind of sneak in and grab the underdog here because of all the reasons that you mentioned, like so many question marks uh, hanging over him and would be, you know, even if he weren't dropping to 125. But uh, I agree that he, he didn't really engage in that as soon as I get tagged, like everything's out the window and I'm brawling against Font. But I think part of that might be down to Font. Like when he's getting just stung with the jab and the cross by a longer guy who's a solid boxer. It doesn't really invite you to go, you know, full Vanderlei Silva. I, I still don't know what it looks like when he gets hit by a guy whose style does invite a brawl. Like if he was fighting Alex Perez on Saturday, like I got Alex Perez by knockout all night. Imagine him and Matt Snell get matched against each other. That'd be a hell of a fight. <laughs> a bit fun. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Double knockout in the pocket. <laughs> uh, Kai Carr France, uh, he's he's a he's a big flyweight, but not big as in tall. Just you know, he's decent height and then kind of broad and got muscle on him. It's kind of like when you say like Darren Till was a huge welterweight. Well, yeah, he was like six feet tall, but just he was thick, and th that's kind of the thing. Car France has, um, especially by the standards of flyweight, he's not a super fast guy. Like not super fast feet, not super fast hands. Uh, he makes up for it a little bit by, I, I think, having pretty solid boxing technique, throws nice straight punches. But the difference in hand speed between Garbrandt and Car France should be glaring because, I mean, Garbrandt deciding to, like, embrace his technical boxing and just throw really fast straight punches is what Dominic Cruz never was able to adjust to. Uh, so I, you know... I'll know I was wrong about this fight again within the first 90 seconds if Garbrandt is just blistering Cara France in, in the boxing. And then, you know, I'll feel dumb on the recap. But I'm going to go with the more known quantity here. It, it, and I know what Kai Cara France is. So give me Kai Cara France by decision as well. But if it does devolve into wild haymakers at some point, I wouldn't be surprised if Cara France tags Garbrandt and puts him down. He doesn't get as many knockouts as he maybe could because he's a pretty, like, measured and buttoned-down striker. But when he hits, he's just got naturally heavy hands. He's just one of those guys that seems to have kind of rolls and nickels in his gloves. But, yeah, I'm going to go with the decision. Give me Kai Car France as well. Third from the top at UFC 269 is a welterweight matchup between Jeff Neal and Santiago Ponzinibbio. Neal, the 31-year-old Texan, is... 13 and 4 overall. He is 5 and 2 since joining the UFC out of the first season of Dana White's Contender Series. That 5 and 2 record represents him coming hot out of the gate and winning his first five, uh, vaulting himself right into the top 10 and minting himself as maybe the most successful alum of the first season of the Contender Series. He, since then, he is on a two fight skid, losing unanimous decisions to Stephen Thompson in the main event of UFC Fight Night 183 last December. And then Neil Magny, who beat him in May at UFC on ESPN, uh, Rodriguez versus Watterson. He'll be facing Ponzinibbio. The 35-year-old Argentinian is 28-4 and four overall. He is 10-3 and three in the UFC. Uh, he is 
one and one since coming back from a over two year layoff due to a variety of injuries and illnesses. Uh, he came back. Well, he, he last taught, uh, knocked out Magni in November of 2018, came back this January and knocked out uh, Li Jingliang in the first round at UFC on ABC Holloway versus Cater. Or sorry, got knocked out by Jingliang Li. I apologize. Came back from that and won a unanimous decision over Miguel Baeza in June at UFC Fight Night Rosenstrike versus Sakai in an absolutely sensational fight. Ponzinibbio, the slight favorite here for reasons that I will go into in just a moment. But as of Wednesday night, he's minus 125, Neil plus 105 as the underdog. Uh, two weeks ago, Neil was the slight favorite. It was almost exactly reversed. Neil was about yeah, minus 120, Ponzinibbio out there around even money. Then it came out uh, almost exactly a, a week ago that Neil had been arrested on Thanksgiving morning. Like, you know, like 3.45 in the morning of Thanksgiving Day. Uh, on suspicion of driving while intoxicated and possession of an unlicensed firearm. Uh, obviously, the headlines looked bad. The mugshot looked bad. In the days following his uh, arrest, his attorney has said that he is going to uh, contest the charge based on the contest the, the DWI charge based on the post-arrest blood test. And it's worth noting that if that shows it not to have been intoxicated, the gun charge will go away with it because it was, in fact, a licensed firearm, but that's uh, invalidated in Texas if he was intoxicated. Uh, nonetheless, even if he's exonerated of all this, uh, it's put a different kind of scrutiny on Neil coming into this fight because he normally has had all the appearance of a model citizen throughout his mixed martial arts career. But again, even if those charges go away, there's the question of two weeks out from a fight, you were out at 345 in the morning in such a condition as even to be suspected of drunk driving. So all the eyes of judgments are upon him now. Like MMA fans are definitely not bound by due process. Uh, the people who bet on MMA are not bound by due process, which is why the line has gone this way. Because if he loses or I mean, even if he wins and just looks completely flat and God help him if he misses weight, everyone will point to Thanksgiving Day as maybe his commitments, his preparation weren't what they might have been. It affects my perception of this fight because before uh, this happened, like, again, two weeks out when Neil was just the slight favorite, I, I'm not a betting analyst, but I would have pointed to this as this is the best betting value on the card. If you get Neil at, like, near even money, I, I think, like, he has this against Ponzinibbio because... I'm still waiting for Santiago Ponzinibbio to show me that he's not shot. I'm concerned that just, I mean, a all-time action fighter career in the action fighter division of the UFC, then compounded by two years away with, like, serious illnesses and injuries, like, I feel as though he's lost something off his chin, and I think he's lost a step. And against Neil, who's, if anything a bigger, harder-hitting version of a broadly th similar fighter. I, I thought this was Neil all day. I'm still, like, leaning uh, Neil here, but it's much more tentative because, again, there's just so much we don't know and now have to ask. But as far as a pick, I'm I'm still going with Jeff Neil. Give me Neil by decision, and you know what? If he's the guy that gets tired first and kind of has to hang on for it, 
again, even in victory, the the eyes of gossip and judgment will be out upon him. And that's kind of sad because he's been a real good story and a real good fighter so far in the UFC. Yeah, we one of the themes that we didn't talk about in the very beginning is just questions. There's so many questions that are going to be answered about fighters this entire card. And we talk about Dominic Cruz, the questions asked about him, the questions about Josh Emmett coming back after the long layoff, the questions about Cody Garbrandt, the questions about Juliana Pena, the, you know, who has been the most active fighter. But of all those, the question about Jeff Neal is obviously the ones that's newest questions asked, freshest in our mind. Uh, a lot of people expected this fight to be pulled. Yeah. yeah. Oh, after the arrest, I assumed it wasn't going to happen. Yeah, so did I. But, um, you know, I I just hope the guy's okay. I hope he's, you know, and if he's not okay, then he shouldn't be fighting. But unfortunately, uh, <laughs> our sport is not the most um, high moral sport. We're not always looking out for the safety of fighters and I'm not, and not that I'm accusing the UFC, the commission or anything. I'm just saying like, just making a blanket statement. Uh, and you're right. Jeff Neal had that nice story, the cheesecake factory worker during the day, beating people's asses at night. Like it's a nice story. Um, so I'm just going to break down Jeff Neal by the skills I've seen. Not, but who knows? It, it, it definitely, like if I was, uh, his head coach, or I was a family member, I wouldn't feel too good being at, you know, my fighter's out at 3.45 in the morning. When, mind you, he's also on a two-fight losing streak. Now, of course, mm-hmm. they went to Stephen Thompson and, and Neil Magny. Not, you know, not a bad guys to lose to. But, you know, if he wants to stay in the rankings, he wants to stay in the elite category, he needs to win. Um, but if I'm a coach of Santiago Ponzinibbio, I'm telling him don't even pay attention to that stuff because – don't start thinking that you're not going to get the best Jeff Neal. So I'm going to break it down like he's the best Jeff Neal. Jeff Neal, he's a southpaw. He's got good footwork, good movement. He's fast, fast hands. He's accurate, straight punches down the pipe, huge, huge power, uh, fights with a high guard defense. Uh, one of the negatives I've said about him before, I still think it's true, he's a little bit of a head hunter. He doesn't go to the body enough. But he does go to the well. He doesn't go to the body enough with his, with his uh, boxing. He does go to the body with his kicks, especially against orthodox fighters from the southpaw. Hard body kick. Uh, obviously, he has a crushing high kick. I like that he he'll, he'll like he'll slip an opponent's strike and then throw a high kick after, which is really uh, really fun. Good takedown defense. Uh, he did show an ability to wrestle against Nico Price. He did that when he was actually hurt by Nico Price. Um, and hard ground and pound. I mean, you saw what he did to Nico Price with the ground and pound. Now, move over to Ponzinibbio. <laughs> We're talking about question marks. I, I agree with you. I think there's still question marks about Ponzinibbio. I'm not saying he's a shot fighter, and I know you didn't say that. You're just saying you're not convinced he isn't. You know, beating Miguel Baez, that's a nice one on his on record. Losing to uh, Li Jingliang is, is not a terrible loss. I mean, that's a good fighter, too. Um, but it's more of... When he left before the two year left, he's he was he was ascending one direction and then he's kind of completely now, you know, he's not completely down a cliff, but it might be you know what it is? It's like that uh you go on a roller coaster and you're going way you ever ride a roller coaster and you go way, way up, and then you're like, Oh, here it is, here's the big drop, and it just one of those little dips. 
Yeah. Like, that's what I feel. And you're like, oh. So he hasn't completely hit that big <laughs> Superman six flags drop. He hit one of those little fake ones. And then they turn the corner and then he goes a big drop. Uh, that's that's kind of how I feel like Ponzi. Like, I don't know how far he's fallen off. Uh, what I see in him, he's a technical, you know, technically sound striker, fast hands. He also has good footwork and good movement. He mixes punches and kicks together well. Um, I love one thing that it's always stood out to me about Ponzi is when Daniel Cormier, who got a little, got a little, got a little diss from Dominic Cruz saying he doesn't do the research. But one thing DC does do is he does really well of technical analysis, picking up things that you wouldn't see. And he showed once in it was the Mike Perry fight how Ponzi was using inside leg kicks to line up his right hand. He literally was kicking a leg to move Mike Perry's defense to follow up with a right hand. It was absolutely brilliant. Once he started pointing it out, I kept seeing it. Um, I like that he uses little traps. Uh, he fights little little angles. Uh, he, he he throws a lot of shoulder feints in his game, which which is a very boxing thing. A guy like Marvin Eastman would be, would be proud of that. Uh, he understands range well, has good vision. Works behind a jab, throws a lot of combos. He's got good, good power. He's he's definitely a finisher. He he's got that like mean streak in him. Uh, I love his left hook. I'd say uh, if yeah, if he hurts you, he's gonna put you out. Hard leg kicks, uh, calf kicks. He isn't known for his grappling, but he will sneak in a, a takedown just to kind of keep his opponent honest. And he's and he's got good cardio, and he can still eat a punch as we saw in that Baeza fight, like. Legion Lang put him out, but Baez uh, landed some big shots, and he was still in it. So as far as prediction goes, Pons is, is definitely the more technically sound fighter, but Neil is faster. He's more explosive. I don't like that Pons got knocked out by Lee. I also don't like that Baez well, landed some shots, that he was able to land that many shots on him and hurt him. So I understand your questions, whether, whether uh, Pons is a shot fighter. And I'm with you. I'm not really sure. And I say if if Baeza landed those shots, like, and Nail lands the same shots, Nail's gonna put you out. Even even <laughs> drunk at 3:45 a.m., Jeff Nail might put you out. So I'm gonna, you know, if he's staying on the roster, that means his his family's confident in him. His, uh, I shouldn't say the roster, stay on the card. His family's confident in him, his his management, his team, UFC. I'm going to trust those. I probably shouldn't, but I'm going to trust those. I'm going to say Nail gets it done. I'm going to say he knocks out Ponzinibbio. Give me Nail by second round TKO. There you go. Two picks for uh, Jeff Neal to find a measure of redemption on Saturday. The co-main event of UFC 269 is a Bantamweight title match featuring Amanda Nunes and challenger Juliana Pena. Nunes, the 33-year-old Brazilian, is 21-4 and overall. She is 14 and one in the UFC and has won her last 12 straight. Uh, she is the UFC women's bantamweight as well as featherweight champion. Uh, fought most recently, uh, her last two fights have been for the featherweight title where she has put away Megan Anderson by first round, complete destruction, you know, and uh, a unanimous decision over Felicia Spencer. She'll be taking on Pena, the 32 year old uh, Washington native is 10 and four overall. She is six and two since joining the UFC as the winner of the 18th season of The Ultimate Fighter. She fought most recently in January, getting a third round submission of Sarah McMahon at UFC 257. That allowed her to bounce back from a guillotine choke 
actual technical submission got choked all the way out by Jermaine Durandamy of all people at UFC on ESPN home versus Aldana last October. Odds on this one. If you've been following this sport long enough to have seen a couple of Amanda Nunes fights, it should not surprise you that she is the heavy favorite. She is currently minus 900 Pena, the challenger out there at plus 600. I feel as though the two title fights at the top of this card deserve a little more, you know, setting of the table before we dig right in. And in the case of this fight, especially because if we don't do that, what else is there to talk about? Uh, <clears throat> I'll give this much to Juliana Pena. She got this fight because she wanted it. She has been chasing this thing and talking all kinds of mad shit about Amanda Nunes for over a year now. I mean, I was at uh, UFC 262 here in Houston where, I mean, she wasn't like she showed up at the uh, open to the public press event and started asking Nunes uh, or started asking questions, you know, and like calling out Nunes, just stepping up to like the, the media mic. She's out there. She's doing this. And considering that you and I, Keith, talk all the time about how a lot of people secretly don't really seem to want to fight Nunes. Like everyone's refusing to go up to featherweight where they could fight her tomorrow if they wanted. And I, I think some of them are secretly hoping that they'll win enough fights to be there to fight for the vacant title. When Nunes retires, you can't say that about Juliana Pena. She That's wants right. this, like she wants this and she's come up with all sorts of like outlandish justifications and reasons why she's going to win. Like the Nunez isn't prepared. The Nunez has never faced someone who does this that I do. And Nunez is, you know, she's, she's a woman of few words, but she's like, she sounds delusional. And I'm like, well, that's, <laughs> that, <laughs> that, that, that's objective fact. She sounds delusional when she says these things. Uh, even by the standards of someone who is challenging the greatest female fighter to ever do it, maybe the most dominant fighter in the sport today, regardless of gender or weight class, even by the standards of that, this is tough sledding for Juliana Pena. Uh, Juliana Pena's best route to victory is to get this fight to the ground. And while she is a plus athlete, I mean, she was a super plus athlete back in the tough days. I mean, you know, she called herself the Kentucky Derby racehorse for a reason. You know, she like, you know, very fast, fluid, athletic, Injuries have taken a little of that off of her. Age has taken a little of that off of her. But at this point, her route to getting this fight to the ground, she doesn't have like a double leg shot from the outside. She, not Sarah McMahon, just to name somebody that, that she's fought recently. She's going to have to get her hands on Amanda Nunes in the clinch and like trip or toss her down. It's a lot of the same thing that Felicia Spencer had to deal with. That like Felicia Spencer's only hope was to get this thing to the ground. Her best hope to do that was to get Nunes in the clinch. So you're putting yourself in the clinch against probably the nastiest phone booth fighter in the sport. One of the nastiest in the history of the sport. Nunes on the feet is deadly at all distances, but she's especially nasty, like in that 12 to 18 inch or we're in the clinch range. I mean, it's where she lamped Cyborg. Like nobody's like, like nobody, nobody's happy place is being in the clinch with Amanda Nunes. It's worth noting that, yeah, Nunez is minus 900. It's minus 135 to finish in the first two rounds. You know, like, it, you were at minus money even to, like, bet that this thing gets finished in the first two rounds. That's what the level of confidence is. And I think in this case, 
it's justifiable for for Pena to win this fight. She would have to do something that we've never seen before from her, and we'd have to see something that we've never seen before from Amanda Nunes. And even the worst case scenario where Nunes really has one eye on the door, she's ready to head into domestic bliss. She hasn't been training like she's supposed to. She's going to announce, going to surprise announce her retirement in the cage afterwards. Like even if all that were true, the worst possible version of Amanda Nunes is still a horrible matchup for Juliana Pena. Uh, Nunes also, she's not, she doesn't toy with her food. Like she didn't finish Felicia Spencer because Felicia Spencer is really smart and incredibly tough. Like the Megan Anderson fight, that's, or, you know, the Holly Holm fight, like the second, like the second Holly Holm fight, the Misha Tate fight where she took the title. That's Amanda Nunes. She comes at Ronda you, Rousey. you. Oh, thank you. Ronda Rousey. Like <laughs> Amanda Nunes does not play with her food. Like, she like she's gonna come out. She's gonna hurt Pena quickly, and the, from there, she I don't think she's gonna give her a, a second of breathing room. And the thing is, even if this thing does go to the ground, Nunes is better than Pena on the ground. Like if if she decides she she's had enough of the talk from Pena about she's never seen what I bring, and she's like, you know what, I'm gonna take her down and I'm gonna like arm triangle choke her. And just you know, get like a muscle power submission on the ground. She can do it, or if she just wants to lightning fast take her back and get like the Tate thing where somebody's face is turning purple and like blood shooting out of a cut. She can do that. This is going to be brutal, and I could be chicken and say second round, but give me Amanda Nunes by first round finish, probably uh, TKO. Yeah. So let me ask you this question before I make my prediction. So if Saturday morning, you know, 9 a.m., there's breaking news on, on Sherdog, and you break the news, 9 a.m. Uh, the Las Vegas police reports that Amanda Nunes was arrested at 3.45 a.m., drunk in a car, but she's still going to fight that night. <laughs> would, you, would you still take her to win? Yes. Yes, would I? I would take her to win actually still drunk. <laughs> You know, it'd be like one of those things on like Worldstar or Break.com where there's just two people swinging on each other in the street, but you're like, oh, one of those people really knows what they're doing. Ow, ooh, ah. Yeah. yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, Amanda Nunes, well, one thing that Julian Penny keeps saying that you mentioned was her saying, like, I have, I have her teammates telling me that she's barely been at the gym. If it was true that Amanda Nunes has not shown up at the gym, you know, she weighed, she made weight, but she has not been at the gym. Would that change your opinion at all? No, because this isn't going to make it to the rounds where cardio matters. Yeah, I, I agree. So, I mean, I obviously already give away my my prediction. So, I'm going to read pretty much the same notes. I have not updated my notes on Amanda Nunes, but I, I I rewatched it, and I'm just I'm just amazed by it. like I rewatched the Me- Megan Anderson fight, and she just like runs right through her, and that was supposed to be the bad stylistic matchup on the feet, the long length, and she's like. No, I'm just gonna throw these power shots right to your head. You're not gonna. I'm not gonna. The be way the way Anderson reacts the first time she lands clean tells you everything you need to know. Yeah, it was it was one of those when she as soon as she got hit, you hear that guy saying like she wasn't ready. <laughs> like, uh, I mean, this, what else is? I said this last time. What else does it say about Manny? She is the absolute goat. I mean, she's the goat of the female. There's absolutely there's no debate. There's no argument. 
stop this Scott Coker nonsense with Chris Lambert. There is, she's beaten everybody, and, and de- demolished them. The, what I think the debate is when it comes to goat for Amanda Nunes is not is she the female goat. You got to start asking the question: Is she just a goat, mm-hmm. regardless of? Like I know in tennis, they say like Serena Williams might be the greatest tennis player, regardless of. You know, obviously not saying she could beat a top man, but saying like her accomplishments, same thing. Like, when are we going to stop putting Amanda Nunes against her resume against John Jones and against George St. Pierre and Demetrius Johnson? Because, I mean, you think about it, she's taking all the top females out. Yep. So that's when it comes to her striking, she's one of the best boxers in the UFC, regardless of her gender. She's light on the feet. She's fast. She's deceivingly strong with these. I mean, that, uh, I'm sorry, deceivingly long. That's something Misha Tate said. Like, when you think you're out of her range and you're not, her her shots are tight. She can strike while she's backing up. Uh, she has great vision. She sees everything coming. You see the difference between her and Chris Cyborg in that fight. She was seeing the shots that she was landing on the, against Chris Cyborg. Uh, she has variety in her attacks. You never know what's coming. She has crushing power. I mean, especially when she's at 145. Like, the power is even more at 145. Obviously, this fight is at 135, but... Leg kicks. I mean, she threw that high kick against Holly Holm, you know, one of the best strikers in female combat sports history, and she knocks her out with a high kick. Uh, she's extro- extremely strong in grappling. She can get trips, smothering top game, great takedown defense. She is a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt. And don't forget her ground and pound. Like, think about what she did to, uh, like, Jermaine Deronimi, just pin her against the ground, landing big shots. Now, Juliana Pena... She's she's always been a pretty mediocre striker, like and be, I wouldn't say she's poor, but I, like I would say she's lower half of the division and actually just striking. She's flat footed. Her boxing is is limited. That she doesn't have much variety in her striking. She's kind of slow. She's not a great athlete. You mentioned about her grappling style. She's just a grinder. Like she's. You mentioned that that's the best way of Felicia Spencer. Another one, Raquel Pennington. That's the only way Raquel Pennington was going to win is to close the distance. And if we're being honest, going all the way back to the, when Amanda's won the title, that was the best avenue for Misha Tate was to kind mm-hmm. of get into a grappling matchup, especially like against the cage. Payne is going to want to close the distance. She's going to try to get a body lock and look for a takedown. But if we're being honest, her grappling is very inconsistent. Like she. So she took down and submitted Sarah McMahon in her last fight. So that was like her best showing. However, we've also seen her recently getting taken down multiple times by Nico Montagna. And she was submitted by Jermaine Deronimi, who, by the way, is the most direct decorated kickboxer in the UFC. <laughs> yeah, the way to beat her, Manny says, I'm not going to stand with her. I'm going to take her down. This is her weakness. I'm going to take her down and I'll grapple her. Uh, so, and. It's funny because they keep talking about Juliana Pena, this like submission threat and, and all this. And she, I'm looking at her record. She's got one, not counting the tough, you know, take that out because they're not official fights. She's got one submission victory in 10 years. Mm-hmm. Like in a decade. Like that's crazy. Like they keep talking about her. Like, you know, she's just like, she's going to have this huge advantage on the ground. I, I don't see she, like, I don't think there's anything she's better at than Amanda Nunes. I think, I think Amanda Nunes is going to, I think Amanda Nunes is going to starch her. I think she's going to starch her coming in. I think, I think maybe Payne gets to the clinch a little bit and, and can 
grind out like a half a round, but eventually she's going to get caught with a shot. You said it's negative. I thought you said like negative 130 or something like that. To stop 135 it. for yeah. For, I'm not a betting guys. I'm not a bet. I, I used to give us some betting guys, but then I just I, that's not my thing. If I was betting, hell, I'll give it up. That's my best. I'm, I'm a locked dead in it. I think. <laughs> Give me the best, you know, I say, I think she's going to start you in the very first round. I think it might be early. I think it might be two minutes in. So give me a minute in this first round knockout. It is unanimous, at least on this panel. Amanda Nunez retains by first round knockout. That brings us to the main event of UFC 269, a lightweight title fight between Charles Oliveira and Dustin Poirier. Oliveira, the 32-year-old Brazilian, is 31 and 8 with one no contest overall. He is 19 and 8 with one no contest in the UFC uh, since joining as, believe it or not, a 20 year old uh, way, way back in the day. He is on a nine fight winning streak, most recently in May at UFC 262 in Houston, knocked out Michael Chandler to win the UFC lightweight title. He'll be taking on Poirier. The 32-year-old Louisiana native is 28 and 6 with one no contest overall. He is 20 and 5 with one no contest in the UFC. He fought most recently in July, uh, getting a TKO via leg injury uh, at the end of round one over Conor McGregor. That was a rematch of their meeting in January at UFC 257, where he knocked McGregor out in the second round. So two wins over uh, the Irish superstar brings him to the a chance to win an undisputed version of the title that he held in interim trim back in 2019 and lost to Khabib Nurmagomedov. Poirier, the slight favorite to get it done. He is minus 162. Oliveira, the champ, plus 142. I'm going to throw it to you for your your pick first, but I just feel like laying out here, even leaving aside that, well, yes, if Khabib Nurmagomedov were still active, you know, he would be favored to beat either of these guys. He's already beaten one of them. He would be favored to beat Oliveira. So they're fighting for the crown in the post-Khabib era. But even by that standard, this is a lightweight title fight that I don't think anyone would have seen coming down the pike, uh, you know, seven years ago. Both of these guys were already well-established in the uh, the UFC. Like, Oliveira came to the UFC at age 20, Poirier at age 21. Uh, and in early in their career, both kind of parallel. Dangerous offensive fighters who had defensive lapses and were maybe trying to fight at featherweight unnecessarily. The the With Poirier, it's been more of just a straight development. He's been with the same team forever. He's gotten better. He's shored up a lot of the holes in his game. He's decided to just stick at 155, and that's done wonders for his chin and his cardio, which is good because those are a couple of things that make his game run. And this just seems like a natural progression. With Oliveira, it's a reinvention. I remember saying on previews, like, you know, when he'd won five or six straight, that I was having to change my thinking about Oliveira. Because I'm thinking about Oliveira seven years ago. This is a guy who is extremely dangerous, even at the time, 
everyone thought he was the most dangerous, like pure submission artist in the UFC, except maybe like Damian Maya. But too inconsistent, a little bit of the mentally fragile, like flakiness to him, and too one dimensional ever to be more than just kind of a, a fun fringe contender. And I think that's why his win over Chandler so perfectly encapsulates his transformation as a fighter because the inconsistent guy had just won his ninth straight fight in the toughest division in the sport. The mentally fragile guy had overcome a world of trouble, a fight that could have been stopped by a different ref and nobody would have screamed about it and come back from that to, uh, to win. And the one dimensional grappler who, I mean, obviously he'd already shown enormous strides in his kickboxing, but it just puts the cherry on top of the Sunday that he knocked out Michael Chandler to, to win it. That you know, the perfect encapsulation of one of the most remarkable career progressions, you know, in my memory as a fan and as a media member, how great that these guys meet for this uh, belt right now. And it's one of those fights where we talk about them. Like you hate to see either guy lose one because they're both yeah. great stories. And two, because, yeah. To all appearances, they're both great guys. Like in Poirier's case, it's obvious. In a sport where a lot of the higher level fighters are just criminal miscreants or creeps, like he is a devoted family man mm -hmm. and a pillar of his community who's never left the place he came from and just has chosen to try to make it better. How can you not yeah. love that? Oliveira, I mean, obviously, there's not quite the same everyman thing out of him especially to American fans, just because, you know, it's, of course. Eng his English is still struggle, and with the bleached hair and the glasses and the suits, <laughs> he looks kind of like a Bond villain. But <laughs> a, a good dude. Um, again, a just kind of dedicated family man. You never see him in the news for the wrong reasons. And one of the highest-level Brazilian fighters never to have left Brazil. Like He's been with That's the same story. team forever. And yeah. that that marks the progression of his game, because he was the ultimate glass cannon early on. He could be knocked out. He could be tapped out. You know, Jim Miller knee barred him. So he had the offensive weapons, but, you know, was always susceptible. But that's because he was training with a couple of buddies in his garage. Then yeah. he started training with, you know, George Macaco. Things like the the submission game tightened up a lot. And ever since he's been with Shootbox uh, Diego Lima, all of a sudden, I'm not going to make the argument that he's as good a striker is, as he is a grappler because he's the all-time yeah. leader in submissions in the UFC, but it's not a weak spot anymore. He is no. he is a nasty like Muay Thai striker now. It's very much like what happened to Fabricio Verdum, where he went from being a one-dimensional grappler who looked hapless on the feet to a dude who could hold his own with just about anybody in the division. Uh, I think Kamaru yeah. Usman's a good example of that. Kamaru Usman was a guy that was not considered a stand-up guy recently, and then suddenly he was like, oh, wow, his setup got really good suddenly. Yeah, uh, that's that's a great uh, comparison as well. Because, yeah, I, I, I don't blame the people that thought of him as kind of grindy and hard to watch early on. But if you think was. he's boring to watch now, you're not watching. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah. Look at these dudes' faces. Stomping on their feet in the clinch did not do that. No, <laughs> no, no. So, um, yeah. Well, I, I'm actually about to, like, tee this up for you, but I'm just saying uh, – if you're not excited for this fight, you don't love the sport. Like, yeah, absolutely. This is fantastic. And kind of like the UFC welterweight division did not get better when George St. Pierre left. 
nothing gets not. better by taking away the best fighter in the history of the sport. Not. But it sure as hell got more interesting. Think of the title fights we got after that, I the mean, Hendricks and Lawler fights, you know. Oh, yeah. That the Lawler and Rory fights. Like Robbie Lawler won Sherdog's fight of the year three years in a row, you know. Uh I would argue kind of the same way in the absence of Khabib Nurmagomedov, this division isn't better but it still might be the best division in the sport and it's sure gotten more interesting. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like the, and you know, where would Islam Makachev be right now? If Habib was a champion, like he, we'd be matching him, not even against contenders. Cause they wouldn't fight each other. Like who, who you know, who knows what would be going on, but this, I want to address before we get into like the breaking down and my prediction, I want to address something. You said a lot of good nuggets that just, I was already excited about this fight and you made me even more excited. It, the storylines are absolutely incredible. I mean, you talk about Charles Oliveira. I'm looking over, you know, his fight finder and go back four years ago, go back, um, you know, almost four years ago to the date, go back December 2nd, 2017. It's UFC 218. The headline is Max Holloway versus Jose Aldo 2. That night, he lost by ground and pound to Paul Felder. Mm-hmm. If you told me that night that Charles Oliveira four years later would be the champion in that division, I would have laughed at you. He, at that point, had just lost four out of his last six fights. He was... I just want to give you the run real quick. He had that weird neck shoulder injury to Max Holloway, which most people thought Max Holloway was going to win regardless. He and, got it. And got also, like, let me just interject, dude. There's no esophagus injury. He quit because something hurt. Like, yeah, th- that that fed into the popular perception of Charles Oliveira that he's going to wilt if things go bad. Yeah, absolutely. Then he submits Miles Jury. He gets submitted by Anthony Pettis. Now you're known for your jujitsu. You get submitted by Anthony Pettis. He gets submitted by Ricardo Lamas back to back for us. You're That's supposed bad. to be a jujitsu guy and you got submitted in back to back fights. Then you go up a weight class, which no one at that time expected anything. He he upset Will Brooks, who was coming in from Bellator, had a little bit of height. He upset Will Brooks, and then you're like, Wow, maybe we maybe Charles Oliver is all right. And then he just gets smashed by Paul Felder. If he gets smashed but, by Paul Felder and the uh and the win over Brooks does not age well, as Brooks is out of the UFC like six months later. The Miles Jury win didn't really age well either. Yeah, because I think I, I mean so that. And then he goes. He has not lost a fight since. Since he lost Paul Felder, he's not lost a fight since. And we we talked. We started off when I was saying that if Dustin Poirier wins, that I, he's my no brainer pick for fighter of the year. And Charles Oliveira, if he wins. I think he's in a discussion for fight of the year, but having only two wins in a calendar is always yeah. tough compared to gay who has three. But if we're taking a 365 day, and this is just by me by chance, just going over his record, just looking at the, I remember that Paul Felder moment. He beat Tony Ferguson December and dominated Tony Ferguson, December 12th, 2020. If he beats Dustin Poirier, he would have three wins exactly 365 days. It'd be Tony Ferguson, Michael Chandler, Dustin Poirier. Any other year, if that's a calendar year, if he fights Tony Ferguson two, three weeks later, he's the he's yeah. the, he's your fighter of the year, or he's yeah. at least he's at least very heated in the debate with probably Kamar Usman or whoever we're throwing in there. It, it, it's it's funny because we've been talking about Dustin Poirier and that's been the narrative, but 
Yeah, Charles Oliveira, like, I think about, you talked about the the difference of how they've been here, how Dustin Poirier, you just kind of see him slowly making improvements each fight and adding tools to his game, while Charles Oliveira just something clicked and ch- completely changed overnight. Yeah, I think about it like a flicking a switch, a light switch, versus like a dimmer. Like one of mm-hmm. those dimmer switches. That was a difference between, like, Charles Oliveira was a light switch, Dustin Poirier's that slow dimmer just slowly gets brighter and brighter and brighter. Um and they're both at their very brightest right now, and and they're the two, you know, the two best lightweights in the world, and it's an incredible story. And yeah, it it has a lot of uh, Jan Blahovich, Glover Teixeira feel to it, where yeah, Charles Oliveira is a great dude, and everyone believes that, but Glover Teixeira went into that fight with the sentiment on his side because he never won the title. And Dustin Poirier has never won the title, so I feel like Dustin Poirier is the guy that people want to win, not that people dislike Charles Oliveira, but it's it's the same situation. Glover Teixeira lost to the all-time great like John Jones. Dustin Poirier made it to the title, lost to an all-time great in Habib Nurmagomedov. Yeah. So, and another point you pointed out, and I just want to address is you talked about him never leaving Brazil. In in while so many people have left Brazil and trained in America, another thing we got to mention is that his prime years was not in now obviously Nova you know Diego Lima is a it's a great team very good team so I'm not trying to diss them but the prime year there was a time where there was top training in Brazil but the years of like the original shoot box with Rafael Cordero Vandalay Silva Shogun like those yeah. you know those days though that team is gone Yep. Brazilian top team with Murilo Bustamante and Ricardo Arona and the Nagira. Those days are gone. Like they don't have those mega gyms like they did before. All the mega gyms now are here in America. And maybe you want to count uh the um what's the team in there in Australia? I can't think of the name right now. City uh, kickboxing. City kickboxing, yeah, yeah. So that's it. So that's another another feather in his cap, which is pretty, you know, amazing accomplishment. Now I know everyone has and not not that Nova you, you Nova you know Diego Lima is a no it's it's it's, shoot, it's shoot a box Diego Lima oh, sorry. yeah it, like sorry I didn't yeah. mean to, I didn't mean to say Nova Yano sorry yeah. shoot box uh, shoot box yeah uh, it's not a small I mean you see that they they done the, the countdown show they show the facility it's a nice thing but it's there's not name after name coming out of that so right. that's just another and I know some people come from a smaller team and and they 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 do better in, in a smaller team like. You know, Demetrius Johnson is a good example, but uh, just something to, to credit. Now, let you, I'm assuming you want me to get into my pick? Absolutely, please. Yeah, this fight is freaking fantastic. I just want to keep talking. I'm just prolonging. I'll start with the champion, Charles Oliveira. I want to read to you the first four things I said about him last time. And I, these are the four things I said about him. He's a well, he's a good athlete, but then the, I really want to say the next three I said him. That he was growing in his confidence, he was growing in his striking, and he was growing in his power. And I still think that's the case now. I think all those things are still, you know, you, you, you know, we talked about his mental, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Delicacy, maybe? Yeah. Mental uh, fragility. Yeah, like that he's had moments like that. But when you win the title, that changes things. You know, he's growing in his striking where you, you know, Four years ago, we would have laughed at Charles Oliveira knocking out Michael Chandler. We would have said Michael Chandler knocked on him, you know, and then obviously his power of putting a guy like uh, Michael Chandler out. So he's a Muay Thai striker. He stands tall like a Muay Thai striker, which is a little disturbing. 
but he's very aggressive. He's willing to land a shot to, to to eat one. He's got confidence in his in his chin. Solid long jab. He's got good timing on it uh, on his counters. That's what he caught Michael Chandler with is a counter strike. He caught him with a little short check left hook, which is his best strike. Uh, step in elbows he likes. Good leg kicks. Uh, he doesn't really check kicks, but um, he'll catch a kick if you throw it, which is you don't really have to check leg kicks with Charles Oliver because not many people want to throw it, take a chance. But uh, he's good in the clinch. He uses his height in the clinch. Uh, he's got good entries. He's more of a getting on your hip and just make a scramble happen, and somehow you find your back. Uh, and he is the most decorated submission grappler of, of a submission specialist in the UFC. He's got more submission wins than anybody that's over Jacare, that's over Fabrizio Verdun, that's over David Meyer, that's over everybody. It's it's him. Um, he's He can get you a submission on the top, on the back, on, on the bottom, sweeps. Uh, but he, I love that he adds a lot of ground upon. He's not simply a submission specialist. He'll beat you up. One huge concern I have about him, though, is his cardio. It, it, we haven't seen him go deep five rounds in a war like we've seen Dustin Poirier do. Now, I want to go with Dustin Poirier. You talked about these guys both being former featherweights, both guys draining their body. I've met Dustin Poirier multiple times in person. Yeah. Guy looks, guy looks like a light heavyweight. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, he's already talking about going up to welterweight, and he would not be undersized at welterweight. No, he might be undersized against Kamaru, like you know, the very big make yeah. Michael Chiesa or something like that. But you know, uh, Kamaru Usman, but like Colby, he and Colby Covington walk around. That's, the same yeah, size, that's the exact name I, I was gonna say. Him and Colby Covington are probably the same size. He might be probably, he might be bigger than Colby Covington. So, um, so obviously he's a southpaw. He's a high output striker, one of the best boxers. Some people say he's the best boxer in the UFC. I will say this, as we've talked before, I don't know if he's the best boxer, but he's getting in the club. The club with him and Petra Jan and, and a couple other guys, like he's in it, Max Holloway. Uh, I love that he switches stances mid-angle. It's something he's been doing every single fight. Max Holloway's fight was one of them that really showed it. Against Connor, really showed it. Uh, he keeps his base. When he's moving, his base is over underneath him, so he the reason why he generates so much power when he strikes is that his legs are always underneath him. And I'm so impressed by that. It, it, it's, it's such a, cause he's not a guy that he's not very fast. If we're being honest, he doesn't have the fastest speed, but everything like the way he throws his hook, it's short, it's tight. And then just his legs, it's his footwork. His the way he gets, it springs off his feet. It's, it's really impressive. His, his counter right hook, is, is his best strike. It's what he was landing against Max Holloway. It's what he hurt Conor McGregor with in the second fight before he put him, well, he was hurting him with that, then he put him with a straight left. But uh, I love that his, his crushing body kicks that he did against Eddie Alvarez. I mean, this little, I said this last time, I'm going to tell you it again. He just has, as we talked about earlier, he adds tools and then we see the tools in fights and you can pick them out. Uh, calf kicks against Conor. Um, his legendary chin. I mean, think about the wars that this guy's been in. And, and when was the last time he was? I mean, he was knocked out. It was the next? When was his last knockout? Was Michael Johnson? Michael Johnson. Yeah. That, that, how, what was that? Seven years ago? I, I don't it, know how long. It, it was uh, five years ago. It was September 2016, and that's his only knockout at 
uh, lightweight. Like, Though, Connor knocked him out, Connor, but again, his chin was not the same thing at 145, and yeah. Connor back then was unbelievable. So, and you think about what Justin Gaethje has been doing to guys, the punches he's been landing, he couldn't put him out. Uh, Eddie Alvarez, at that time, Eddie Alvarez, you know, winning by, you know, Eddie Alvarez, you know, shortly before that was knocking out RDA. Uh, Dan Hooker, the size of the Dan Hooker that couldn't put out Dustin Poirier. Um, he he needs to improve checking kicks. That's one success that Hooker had on him. Um, he's also not a great wrestler. He can get takedowns. He he likes to get him from the clinch. But we saw him wrestling in both the second and third fight against Connor, which was obviously smart against Connor tying him out and 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 putting him against his, on his back. Um, concerning this is defensive wrestling. He obviously he was taken down by Habib Nurmagomedov. Ignore that. I mean, he takes down everybody. Uh, but Eddie Alvarez took him down a little bit, mm-hmm. which gives me, you know, pause. Pause for one to pick him because if Charles Oliveira gets you down, that might be the, that might be a wrap. Uh, the other thing that really concerns me always, and I've, I say this every single time with Dustin Poirier, and I still say it and it really concerns me, is he will jump on a guillotine when you go for a takedown. I hate that. Um, and... You do it against Charles Oliveira, the fight might be over. But out of everything I talked, I talked about the base of Dustin Poirier, his feet, his power. The thing that I loved about Dustin Poirier more is what you can't measure, and that is simply his heart. I think about him going against a fight against Max Holloway where he's winning, but then Max Holloway's trying to take over, and Max Holloway's the, the ultimate builder, and he's getting stronger and stronger. And Dustin Poirier took what. Well, it seemed like I remember saying, "Oh, here goes Max Holloway. It's gonna, he's gonna blow him out." And Dustin Poirier found us a way to recover. He found a way to talk himself back into a fight and win. I think about the late stoppages he got against Eddie Alvarez in a war, late stoppages against Justin Gaethje in a war. The fact that he was dead tied against Dan Hooker and he had to dig deep in that—that that you can't measure. And I don't know if Charles Oliveira has that. So as far as my prediction goes. This fight is absolutely amazing. Both guys both guys have to be absolutely perfect in this fight. And what I mean by that is if Oliveira slips up for one second, Dustin Poirier can put him out with one single shot. But if Poirier slips up for a single second, Oliveira can put him out with a punch or even more likely he can submit him. So when this fight for, first was announced – I always you know, like everyone. You see that on Twitter, see it on Sherdog, see wherever. You, that's reacting. You always think like, I mean, this I do this. Like, who's gonna win? When this first was announced, I said Charles Oliver is gonna win. When before I did tape study, I wrote down Charles Oliver. I always do who I, who do I think is gonna win before tape study? See if change change. Then I did tape study. And I still think Charles Oliveira is going to win. But then I did something I never, ever, ever do. I ne- I, I always try to have my eyeballs tell me who's going to win and not go to the intangibles that you can't really see. And this is going to sound like the stupidest reason. I just have a gut feeling, man. It just, it just seems like it's – Dustin Poirier has been here, and it just – I don't. I just don't. And I know this is gonna sound terrible. And if you're watching a two-hour show to hear me make this prediction, his his book is closing, his career is closing, and that final chapter has to be written with him the title. 
him with the actual title, not the interim title. So I think Charles Oliveira is going to take him down. I think Charles Oliveira is going to have his back. I think Charles Oliveira is going to put Dustin Poirier in a position where it looks really, really bad. But I think Dustin Poirier is going to do it again. I think he's going to find a way to survive. And as the rounds get up, go deeper and deeper, I think he's going to find a way to take over. About round three, he's going to start landing some big shots. And I think around four, he's finally going to put, put him out. So give me Dustin Poirier by fourth round TKO. Man, I was hoping we were going to disagree on more fights tonight. This is a 15-fight card, and we have only disagreed on the result of one fight. And even in the details, we've been in agreement on how most of the fights are going to look and, like, the method of victory. But I have agonized over this. I mean, I've, I've agonized over it for a couple months, definitely this week, and even right up to yesterday. Uh, but... I'm with you, you know, for all the intangible reasons you mentioned. And I don't go to those things first, but if a fight is this close, it's absolutely a tiebreaker. I mean, what is it that really unites the greatest of the greatest fighters of all time from that next tier? You know, it's typically ability to push through adversity. Uh, yeah, I mean, and in a, even a more tangible way yeah Poirier like definitely gets tired even at 155 pounds he has a serious weight cut he's a super high output guy but he's a guy that has gutted out uh wins even when he was tired I expect Charles Oliveira will have him in all kinds of trouble at some point in the first two rounds probably in the very first round I I, I think I mean this could be the the really tentative feel each other out first round, but I don't think it will be. I think it'll be like that for maybe 45 to 60 seconds, and then we're going to get a wild round, kind of like the first round of Oliveira versus Chandler. And it would not surprise me if both these guys had each other in trouble that first round, but Oliveira had Poirier in more trouble. I think we'll be buckling in for a classic, but I agree that Poirier will start picking things up. I think his punching power will start to tell. I think... uh, yeah, I, I think I, I think Poirier will will start rolling downhill after some early difficulty. Give me Poirier by third round uh, TKO. That's it. That is fifteen can fights. I, yeah. Can I ask you one question? And we'll we'll pick this up on the recap. We'll leave this open. We'll 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 uh, tease a question we might ask the recap. If Dustin Poirier beats Charles Oliveira and wins the title, is he the I'd say Habib is probably still the best lightweight just based on the, his record, but is that some party at number two? I'll I'm leave not it ready to answer that yet. I, yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll pick it up on, on Saturday night or Sunday morning, where I should say. Yeah, it'll, it'll definitely be Sunday morning. Uh, <laughs> but that's it, man. 15 fights up, 15 down. Uh, the UFC closing out the year. I mean, there is one more card, but this is their last you know, pay-per-view of the year with an absolute bang. This promises to be a fantastic card. It will be huge. It'll be exhausting. And we'll have a hell of a lot to talk about afterwards. And we will do so, uh, you know, 10 to 15 minutes after the end of the main event. Keith and I will be live on the Sherdog YouTube page with the live recap. The comment feed is open. There's always been a great back and forth there. People asking questions people answering questions, kind of giving their take on what 
happened, what it means, what's next. We would love to see you there. Uh, if you're watching this right now and you've not done so already, please do like, subscribe, do all those good things. Uh, a show like this. Leave a comment. Yeah, leave a comment. We'll we'll answer. Uh, you know, Keith and I are manning the wheel on that very often. I mean, a show like ours, I mean, it's never going to be this thing that draws like 500,000 views. There simply aren't enough fans hardcore enough to want to hear 10 minutes of talking about, you know, it's the first fight on a fight night card. But that's what we do. So if you're watching this and you enjoyed it, you are our people. And uh, we'd love to have you along for the ride. For Keith Schillen, I'm Ben Duffy for the Sherdog Radio Network. Thank you so much for watching. Enjoy your week. Enjoy the fights. And we will talk to you on the recap.